of the boudoir when I take off my pants All of this is true All of the above I wouldn't lie to you Cause I'm a pig for love My appetite's rapacious But my capacity is dim Seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and a push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. suspicious please pardon me if I'm somewhat repetitious like a hand in a glove I'm a pig for love New music from Professor Mike Steinell, <laughs> Pig for Love. Welcome to the mop-up for November 15th, 2021. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 43 degrees and cloudy. Joe Rogan says he's flexible enough to blow himself. See, I don't have the time to stretch like Rogan does. So I just blow somebody else. Rogan discovered he could lick himself while striking a yoga pose known as downward facing pussy. I'm glad I can't reach down there. Seriously, if I could blow myself, I would gorge on my precious bodily fluids until I weighed 600 pounds. General Michael Flynn said over the weekend he only wants one religion in America. Well, that's one more than I want. Beto O'Rourke announced today that he is running for governor of Texas due to a constitutional quirk. The governor of Texas means absolutely nothing, just like Beto O'Rourke. O'Rourke ran for Senate in 2018 and lost. He then ran for president in 2020 and lost. And now 
He hopes to bring his losing spirit to a failed run for governor, after which he can finally give up politics and cash more checks in the private sector from his horrible, despicable, multimillionaire Republican father-in-law. Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, the longest-serving member in the Senate, announced today that he will not seek re-election in 2022. Senator Leahy, now in his 80s, says he's accepted the position of chief lobbyist for the Association of American Kidney Stones Manufacturers. In Daytona Beach, Florida, over the weekend, Sophia Arista, lead singer for Brass Against, was appearing at the Welcome to Rockville Festival. That's in Daytona Beach. She looked over the sea of Florida faces and immediately realized she had to relieve herself. She said, uh, I got to pee. This is a true story. I got to pee and I can't make it to the bathroom. Then she realized, wait, this is Florida. The entire state is a bathroom. And so Sophia Arista, lead singer for Brass Against, brought a male fan up on the stage, told him to lie down, and then she proceeded to urinate on his face as she performed Rage Against the Machine's Wake Up. Personally, I would have gone with Coldplay's Yellow or Dolly Parton's Islands in the Stream. Promoters suspected something was up when they noticed the writer in Eurista's contract called for 10 bushels of asparagus. Uh, I don't want to tell you what she performed for an encore. Let's just say in Florida, they call it dropping a DeSantis. Later after the concert, the lucky fan who got peed on said it was incredible but wished instead of the lead singer ping on him, it was his daughter, Ivanka. She's back. Colleen Worthman. She's written for The Daily Show, Comedy Central, the Mark Twain Prizes, the Emmys, the Academy Awards. The lists go on and on and on. She's an OG on The David Feldman Show. More like an, a U-G-H Ugh. <laughs> Do you know that, that was Bruce Lee's sister's name? Really? Ugh Lee. You wow. I'm making that up. I was. Oh. Okay. I was going to really enjoy that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm still going to enjoy it. I'm choosing to have a good day today. You know what? I am in the middle of a. So we live Uh-oh. stream the show. You can tell. Indeed. You can tell that I'm about to just explode we we've been live streaming this show via zoom onto youtube for a year and a half live Uh and i couldn't live stream for the first time in a year and a half i couldn't live stream the show and the and i put on the best show for what what do you call the people who come here i forgot the 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 bms what does that stand for yeah the the basement masturbators the basement masturbator the bms that's right we should uh, make T-shirts. Colleen Worthman's BMs. Uh, <laughs> that's what she calls my audience. The, <laughs> the basement masturbators, which isn't, you know, half my audience is doing it in the attic while they listen. But 
So I'm just used to doing this show. Or at the mall. <laughs> at the mall. <laughs> They're very old, so they still go to the mall. <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> oh, it's so good to see you. Um, anyway, so today is the first time in a year and a half that we haven't been able to live stream the show. And, and you're all a tizzy? Yeah, I'm just kind of... and. I had to model good behavior in front of the BMs oh. today. I, oh, yeah? Well, I, I was on the phone with Zoom customer service for an hour, and there were people in the Zoom room watching, and I couldn't be sarcastic. How are you on hold? Are you a good, are you a good, on, speaking of basement masturbators, how are you on hold? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I try to keep myself busy with tasks while I'm on hold. Why are you hitting? Do I? No, no, I was just, uh, it's, a new, oh, you know, I, it's just a new nervous habit I have where I check. Oh, no, I, I was just, no, no, I wasn't signaling to you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really don't. Oh, oh. <laughs> 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 um, I try to uh, do stuff that I've been, you know, meaning to do, like, get crap out of the junk drawer or make mm -hmm. the bed or whatever. If I know it's going to be a while, um, I'll just put it on speaker and then do my stuff. I try to be patient because most of the people who are working these jobs are not, you know, right in the best zone right. in their lives. So right. I have a lot of compassion for that. I used to do telemarketing when I was in high school as one of my $4 an hour jobs because mm -hmm. it was the olden times. <laughs> And uh, I did fundraising for my high school while I was there. So I, I have some compassion for customer service folks. Yes. Have you always? Have I always? No. No. Like uh, Citibank, when they put you on the phone. Oh, my God. Please. please. No, you go ahead because go ahead. Here's, here's my thing. They're very, very obviously reading off a script that is geared toward positive feelings. Mm -hmm. Like this, this like industrial organizational psychology sort of like mind games. Mm -hmm. Like, first of all, I want you to know that we are very grateful for your 15 years of loyalty to Citibank. <laughs> and like, I, I don't like the, the preamble and the postamble. Right. You know, and, but I know that if they get hung up on or they get interrupted and people get mad at them, that their rates go down. You know what I mean? The person on the phone. Yes. The, the tech support helper. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm furious and I feel morally beholden to. Right. Be patient and listen through the preamble and the postamble. Right. Right. They do that Why thing they where for me a fucking credit card that I don't want or right. what it, God only knows what. OK, we can take care of that. We're so grateful that you called. And mm -hmm. may I ask you what's your uh, Social Security number? OK, absolutely so, not. Yeah, like, and OK. <laughs> and that's a great number that you have. May I just say that? And, it's, it's a yeah. beautiful selection of 10 digits. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I recorded something over the weekend that I was going to play. I wanted to find out what it would cost to 
put $10,000 on my credit card and not pay it back for a year. Uh-huh. And they wouldn't tell me. This was Chase. And I recorded oh. it. I went through four customer service representatives who told me they were offering me a credit card. Uh-huh. So I thought, okay. They advertised it as, you know, take $10,000. It's yours. And I want to know what $10,000 unattended to for a year would cost me. And they gave me, they were like offering me an APR. I don't even know what that means of like. Annual percentage rate. Yeah. And so it was like, I don't even remember, uh, but it was. Was it like over 10%? It was shitty or good? It was, oh, it was way over 10%. Oh, ooh. Yeah. And I said, I, so I, I said, I'm planning a medical emergency. <laughs> I swear to you. I'm going to, I'm going to botch my own organ removal. <laughs> I'm, I'm planning. Do a hip replacement with a jumbo Tootsie Pop. <laughs> excruciatingly painful. Then I'm going to get addicted to opioids. <laughs> What's it going to run me? And I'm planning an, uh, an infection. I'm, I'm planning right. them to put the wrong. Huge MRSA infection. <laughs> right. And I'm going to get leprosy. And Excuse some... me, now it's called Hansen's disease. <laughs> is it really? Yes. Leprosy is called Hansen's disease? I didn't think they were that bad. I mean, I thought MBOP was okay, <laughs> but didn't deserve leprosy. Hansen record, recorded MBOP, right? No, this is H. Yes, they did. But okay. that's H-A-N-S-O-N. This is H-A-N-S-E-N. Oh. Apostrophe S. So I don't know what Hansen that is. Maybe Sally Hansen, the nail polish lady, like all of her <laughs> fingers and then toes and then like feet and then <laughs> arms and legs fell off. And you, you'd go to her to get a pedicure and just leave your toes here. We'll get them Sally back. Hand less, <laughs> more like. <laughs> Uh, is leprosy still a thing? It is in like some super uh, like low development countries. So it's a, probably a thing that's going on in America. So we can't make <laughs> lep we can't make jokes about leprosy. Now I feel guilty. Anyway, I said I'm planning a ten thousand dollar medical emergency, mm -hmm. and I'm going to be shopping around for an emergency room in a few hours. Right now I'm shopping around. You said this to the customer service lady? No, person? no, I didn't. But for the purpose oh. of this story, I kind of, oh. I, I recorded it and I kind of said to her, hypothetically, I'm shopping. I, I wasn't cruel enough to do that because, okay. but I said, I, I'm shopping around I said, let's say I'm shopping around for a medical emergency and they would go, oh, OK. Uh, but I, like I can't be cruel to them. And so I I got on the phone with four, I had four customer service agents. And all I asked was, I can't work for a year. This isn't funny, but I was just curious. What uh -huh. what will it cost me to put ten thousand dollars on the card for a year and not pay any of it back? And they said, well, you have to pay a minimum of $40 a month. Otherwise, it goes into collections. Right. So, so I said, OK, so I'm going to pay 
$500 a year off the 10,000 just for the minimum. And then Right, but that that APR is aggregating with each month. Yes, it's the miracle of compound interest the other yeah. way. So one compound woman interest, that's right. Yeah, one woman said to me that if your APR is 15.9 and I have her doing the math. And uh-huh. I, this took like a 90 minutes <laughs> for them to figure this, like it's, it was as though nobody ever asked them this question before. I'm surprised there's not like a compound interest calculator online that you could use. Well, but I wanted to know if they knew at okay. Chase. The first woman told me that if my APR is 15%, I'm looking at it right now, she said the $10,000 would be $17,564 at the end of the year. And I said, you're telling me that I'm going to, $10,000 will cost me $7,564 at the end of the year. And she said, yes. Yes. I asked her to recalculate that. She insisted that 15% of $10,000 was $7,564. Isn't that amazing? Um, yeah. But. That's a lot. Um, so, David, I don't think you should do that. No, no. I, I'm going to lend money. At I, I've decided to lend okay. that money. I'm going to borrow some. Are you getting into loan sharking? Right. I always thought that that was a really great side hustle for you. How many <laughs> times have I told you that? Don't you remember? You, you got a big job. I don't want to. And you said to me, I ha- I'm making a lot of money. I'm going to give you some to put on the street. I remember you called me. And he said, oh, yeah. yeah, let's put this money out on the street. And I was let's make it work for us. Let's make it work first. Anyway, yeah. if I went over, it took me 90 minutes. If you borrow, if you get an APR 15 percent and leave it alone by the end of the year, it, it's 30 percent. Yeah, but you're pay, it's like ten thousand dollars costs you biblically usurious rates. I mean, th- this is stuff that's forbidden in the Bible. So. Right. But I mean, what isn't? <laughs> Shrimp. Bacon. <laughs> gay marriage. <laughs> BJ's. <laughs> so what are you reading? What? How are you relaxing? Oh. Are you teaching? Um, I, I actually just taught the other day. I did a really fun um, sort of creativity workshop with some kids. Well, kids, they're like full-grown adults in the um the sundance episodic lab which is this little kind of elite workshop where every year i think they do it twice a year there's like uh eight or ten people who all have a tv project and sundance is helping them kind of shepherd it to the next level and they kick off the week with me and i do these sort of writing prompts and creative prompts and then we talk a little bit about their scripts and what they're stuck on or feel like they want to reinvigorate and mm-hmm. i'll have them all do little tricks and little exercises to sort of flip it around like uh you know have them write the scene or the voiceover from another character's perspective or have them write the craziest possible thing that could happen in their script and then what would happen if it actually did right like write the scene after that right or like a description of the scene just stuff like that to kind of break them out of the thing that it's like, okay, my this script was, you know, like there's under so much pressure 
and like kind of all these eyes are on them. So it helps them just kind of, at least I hope, unclench their sphincters and tap back into their, um, like what I call the ever rushing river inside of ourselves where like, you can just trust that you're going to have another good idea that, you know, they come along like a little leaf and you can like look at it or you can take it and save it or let it go, you know? Wow, that's kind of, beautiful. It, it sounds kind of fruity, but I really believe in it. Like sometimes when I get really uptight when, when I'm writing, if I feel nervous or anxious, I just say to myself, I'm an ever rushing river. And it really, it works for me. I'm an ever rushing river. I'm yeah. an ever, I'm going to, that's going to be my, my mantra. I'm an ever rushing river. Let it flow. Let yeah. it flow. Yeah, that would help me at my age. That will also help me just standing in front of the urinal. Forget. I, I was just going to say with yeah. all your prostate issues because of your advanced age, that could work wonders when you're at the turlet. The turlet? Yes. Oh, you're from the Midwest. I forgot. <laughs> so do you recommend when you read these writing books? And I'm, I'm trying to write a book on how to write a screenplay. And oh, I'm, okay. I'm joking. Uh, this oh. is a joke. And I'm having oh, right. writer's block. Because you said it kind of serious like. I know. I, uh, I'm working on I was writing a book on how to write a, a book. And I have, I'm blocked. On, uh, is there a structure to books on writing? A begin, no. Uh, they say, in all seriousness, like, you, like, you take a class in writing and they say you want to write the dialogue, but that's the dessert. You got to really mm. flesh out the characters, their wants, their needs, their tastes. Yeah. And, you know, you need to know how the story ends. But then, like, I met Harlan Ellison and I asked him. Ooh. Yeah. And he said, bullshit. He said, I, I don't know who the characters are until I hear their voices. I just I mean, start I writing. Think everyone has their different process, you know, right. like there are so many schools of thought about this. Some people like to be very schematic and do plot, 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 plot. And they don't even give the characters names. Those right. A, B, C, whatever. Um, or they'll just give them a generic name like the girl, the boy, right. the jerk, the whatever. Um, and other people start very, very uh, character based. And the character wants this. So that happens. Mm -hmm. And despite that, they this. Or because of that, they this, you right. know, like Venus sued, uh, who was a showrunner for The Killing. And she's also done some other really good TV, the, the American version of The Killing, not right. the original, like Swedish or Danish one or whatever. Um, she's very character oriented in the way that she develops show ideas and scripts and, you know, story arcs and stuff like that. Right. Frederick Knott, who wrote... Uh, Wait Until Dark and Dial M for Murder, mm. British playwright, said that mm -hmm. he would move, they, before he wrote the play, he did exactly that, that A wants B and B wants B to think mm -hmm. that C, that he didn't even know what the story was. He was thinking A thinks B, so C enters the picture and tries to convince C that B is against A. And then he just said, OK, I'm going to make this the woman. And, the, and there is something to be said to like doing it purely mechanically and yeah. then built. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, if it if it works for you, it works for you. I mean, sometimes it's hard to know what. So I think it's always good for people to just try different ways. And if you feel like an internal like, ooh, ooh, right. You know, I, I call it the oogly googlies, which is sort of silly and immature, but mm-hmm. whatever. I like that because that's playful to me and fun. And I right. like to have a sense of playfulness because it takes away the pressure and like despair and like or at least it, le- it cantilevers it. Um if, if it gives you googly googlies, it's worth a try. Right. You know, like right. there, there are all kinds of mysterious adages about script writing and playwriting. Like there's this playwriting adage that all stories are two things. Stranger comes to town or person at home leaves on a journey. Say that again. That's I can't believe that. Stranger what, comes to well, town. But what was the preamble to that? Uh, there's only two kinds of stories. <laughs> Right. Stranger comes to town or a person at home leaves on a journey. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The other night. You have to go over like every play in the whole world and figure out which is which. Right. Zoo story. Stranger comes to town. Um. This is the dead uh, streetcar named Desire. Stranger comes. Stranger to town. comes to town. Strangers on a train. Right. He goes uh, on a journey, and then a stranger comes to town. I believe. So the other night, I decided I'd conduct an experiment because I, I, I thought, you know, there's all this stuff that I don't watch. I'm going to watch the first act of a couple of movies on Netflix. Uh-huh. What did you watch? So. For for some reason, and I don't know why, I I watched Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone on Netflix, where he plays came out in '93. Okay. And I'm telling you, the first 20 minutes, the first act, is incredible. If you have really? if you have vertigo and and acrophobia and a fear of heights because he's a, a rock climber and it's all about rescuing people who've oh. gotten to the top of mountains and they need rescuing. OK. And then I said, OK, 20 minutes. I know exactly. I, it, and I recommend it. I, I think this is so exciting. Mm-hmm. I, it figures that Netflix would. They looked at this and they said, you know, this is a good movie to run. Wait, is this a new movie or old? No, it came out in 93. Oh, okay. And then I watched Olympus Has Fallen. It oh, was that's I, the assassination movie, right? Yeah, where... With like Gerard Butler? Gerard Butler. Uh-huh. Identical. So he's a Secret Service agent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's protecting the president, the wife, and the kid. Right. He thinks it's his fault because yeah. the wife died in a right. accident. And he, 16 months later, he's no longer protecting the president. He's done. He's got a desk right. job. Now, the inciting incident, and right. he's, they need him back. And, he, mm-hmm. and, and, and I didn't see the rest, but I knew that he was going to go on a journey to discover that it wasn't his fault that the wife... Man goes on a journey. Yeah, it wasn't his fault that the president's yeah. wife died. Right. That's a, and, and before that, I watched Cliffhanger, where Sylvester Stallone 
is supposed to rescue people who are trapped on a mountain and his best friend's girlfriend gets stuck and she's holding on. This is the first 20 minutes and Mm -hmm. she slips and falls to her death and it's his fault and he's done. Then it cuts to 15 months later. I'm done. I'm never going back. And then there's a storm and they need him. And I turn it off and I go. And then he discovers that it wasn't his fault that she died. Right. And I'm but thinking, it gives him the sort of masculine impetus to act heroically. Right. Yes. So it's the same plot, different settings. Are we OK with that? Do people watch that and know people know that this is what's going to happen? It- oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen. People will watch most anything. Yeah. Except something I'm on. Or something, or something where I go, where I'm happy at work. Like I get a job, and I'm going. I'm, you know, this. I'm happy, and they go, no, no. I love it. Yeah, Yeah. no. I've never had. I've never had a job where I was happy and it was successful. The the only jobs that last are the ones where I go. I'm fucking trapped here for the rest of my life. The walls are caving in on me. This is not who I am. It just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. That's ever meet the people can't kill weeds. <laughs> ever meet the people who've worked on a show for twenty years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they got that thousand yard stare, <laughs> like the old Letterman writers. It's it really is a, a prison sentence. Yeah, because I'm lucky. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. It's good money. I, I, it's like a family. <laughs> exactly. It's like a family. <laughs> you want to get out as soon yeah, as the Manson family. <laughs> I know. It's just <laughs> that's I. It's what you want. You really do. You want to just land a job and have it for 20, right. 25 years. And I don't know. I don't know. Uh, what are you reading? Uh, I just finished a really good book called The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su by Tom Lin. And it is this totally wild Western about a Chinese American guy. I mean, it, it takes place in Wild West times who uh, who was like. Uh, the son of a a bonded Chinese laborer on the railroads. Mm -hmm. And he's got like a kill list, you know, and he, then he hooks up at some point with this like circus troupe that has kind or like traveling show troupe that has like supernatural powers. It is, it's the prose is breathtakingly beautiful. The way it describes the landscape. I mean, it's kind of like a Cormac McCarthy ish in its stark precision. Um, Boy, I should have you. Uh, Michael Krasny is going to be on the show in a couple of hours. He mm-hmm. He's from San Francisco. Professor Michael Krasny. You mm-hmm. would love him. He t- uh, teaches uh, English literature and he's a local radio star. I knew him from San Francisco. Oh, cool. he was, yeah, he was a talk, talk show host. He requires like an hour of sleep and just reads the rest, the rest of the day. Wow. It's incredible. To the, Are you how is your discipline with the reading are you able to just turn everything off and focus on are you able to lose yourself in a book right now 
Uh, it depends on the book, but generally, yes. Um, I also don't force myself to keep burrowing through a book if I'm just not into it. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, maybe this isn't the right time for me to read this. Or, you know, I, I, maybe it's just not that good. Like I heard about it and I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe it's not for me. Right. Um, like Jonathan Franzen has a new book out. And mm -hmm. this is what I'm so I think I was reading it. Maybe it was in the New York Times or the New York Review. Somebody was reviewing it and said the problem with being a great writer is you don't have an editor willing to stand up to you and tell you to cut 200 pages oh. out of this book. And I thought. This seems I, I'm reading more and more reviews of books where they're cl complaining about the it's length. Too long. Yeah, that's wild. And, you know, this show is all about, come on, people don't have time. Let's keep things. <laughs> let's keep things. Chavezian is how I would describe it. <laughs> Chavezian? Yes. As in Hugo. <laughs> you know, when he would do like the 11 hour long. Speech? Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> right. This show. Uh, I just don't know how to press the stop button. That's you. You got the gift of gab, as we say in the Midwest. Uh, you like to talk. You like to chop it up. What else am I going to do with my life? Exactly. Right. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've read recently. Mm, hold on. Let me. Well, this I is what I'm going to do. We'll, we'll take some calls. John oh, Hayes, okay. you want to talk about IATSE? John Hayes? in West Los Angeles? Did you vote yes or no? It, it barely passed. Yeah, I, uh, I, oh, man. Hang on, you got, your sound is no good. Oh, well, hold on. <sighs> okay. Ah! Whose cat is, is that? <laughs> While he's doing his sound, uh, David, uh, I send you warm greetings from Liam McEnany. Never heard of him. <laughs> he and I, David, you know, have been. Better? That's better. He and okay. I have been writing uh, a pilot together and it's been a lot of fun. Really? Yeah. I have to have Liam back on. John, yeah. And in fact, John Hayes is a big fan of Liam McEnany's. Oh, nice. Didn't you see him at the improv? Well, I saw him like three days before lockdown. Right. Oh, you know, wow. One on two years ago. Yep. Oh, okay. I found my other three books that I've been reading. Okay. Okay. Number one. Whose cat is that? Who's is that? Your cat it's or mine? Okay. It's mine. I put her in my lap. Okay. Go ahead. Now she'll be quiet. That cat is not into that lap. <laughs> or oh, really? No, she wasn't or really lap. into was it. Problem. Oh, oh, that cat is into that lap. <laughs> lap it up. Go ahead. Uh, okay. This book, A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Towels. I don't know how you say his name. Amor Towles. I right. think he's English. Anyway, uh, it takes place like right after the Russian Revolution. He's like mm -hmm. a Russian nobility guy and he stays right. in this hotel and he befriends this little girl. I haven't gotten very far, but my parents have been reading it and they're, they're super into it. So I was like, all right, I'll read the book. You okay. know, give us something to talk about the next time we all have a visit. Good. Number two, David Chang's memoir, Eat a Peach. He's I thought the, that was a, uh, wasn't that an Almond Brothers album? I think it is. Isn't it? Yeah. His, one like of the that. Almond Brothers died in a motorcycle accident. They, he crashed into a, a peach truck. 
Oh. So they called their so, album Eat a Peach. Oh, because like his teeth landed on a peach, like he just slammed into the tree. Like, huh? he, he choked on the pit. That's what he... Um, wow, <laughs> go, go ahead. Anyway, this guy is a New York chef, restaurateur. He, um, his restaurants are called Momofuku, this and that, generally. And the logo is a peach, hence the title. Um, oh, I also okay. like it because you see the little guy, he's like pushing the peach up the mountain, kind of uh -huh. like Sisyphean. I like that. Yeah. Anyway, he has a very frank, uh, very self-harsh uh, authorial voice. And I find it really refreshing. Like it's super candid. Right. It, it does not sound like it was crafted with this eye toward publicity. Like he's totally manic and nuts and depressive and uh, speaks very honestly about all his failures, like as a leader. And the, so I, I've, I've found it fascinating. Okay. Then uh, this book, how corporate intelligence is reshaping the world mm. because uh, the next thing that I want to write is about a woman who is a corporate spy who gets recruited by the Calabrian mob to um, work for them in the corporate sector. The Calabrian mob. Yeah, they're called the Andrangheta. They're like the least famous. Oh, they're the biggest mafia biggest in Italy, right? Powerful in, in like all of Europe, right. most of North Africa, and even to some degree in Asia, they like control a lot of the drug trade that's not in Mexico and they have a lot of money laundering operations. Right. There's a like big trial very, right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a huge trial with like 230 uh what do you call it? People facing trial. Oh my god, what's that word? Uh suspects? Uh defendants? And Lee says defendants. 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 Yeah. And <laughs> the big brain fart. Right. Right. And it's um, not Sicily. It's no longer Sicily. No, it's Calabria. Right. I see. And which is like, it's not the, it's not an island like uh, like Sicily. It's it's like the toe so, of the heel of Italy. Right. Right. Or no, excuse me. It is the heel of the boot of Italy. We call it the jam of the toe between the heel. <laughs> uh, before you go, I think that's really fascinating because... The mafia is corporate. The, yes. They, 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 there is no. Yeah, they have like bonuses and shit. And they, they have insinuated themselves into the Fortune 500 that they, the multinational corporations. Yeah. If you're ExxonMobil and you're dealing with Nigeria, you're dealing with tribal warlords and if you want to right. get your oil into mm -hmm. staten island and queens you have to deal with tribal yeah. war and actually that this book talks a lot about like oil situations and like uh information and even like uh, agriculture like uh, monsanto like seed theft patent stealing and all kinds of shit like that it's right. pretty wild then the last book i'm reading is the committed by um viet Tan gwen mm -hmm. which is um it's the sequel to The Sympathizer, which I think I talked about the last time I might have been on your show. Uh, it's just about this guy who is um, like a, a mole, like a pro-communist mole who like infiltrates this pro-democracy, pro-freedom uh, emigre community in the U.S. 
after he comes here from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fat. And anyway, this is like the sequel where he lives in Paris. And uh, it's right. totally fascinating and, and so, so good. What is the name of the book about the, the corporate surveillance? What is it called? It's called uh, The Modern Detective, colon, How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. I want to. Great. By Tyler Maroney, who runs his own uh, firm. Great. Colleen Worthman, follow her on Twitter, friend her on Facebook, and come back real soon. I've missed you. you. It's good to see you. I miss you too. Yeah, it's great. Shout out to all the BMs. The basement. The basement masturbators. masturbators. Some of them. Baiting everybody. Thank you. Bye, Come bye. back. Say hello. Say hello to everybody for me. Thank okay. you. Will do. Colleen Worthman, really funny person. Now let's go to the dark belly, the underside of the left end of the political spectrum. Jeff Blackwood is back. Wood. Jeff Blackwood is back. Wood. Are we going to see you or are we just going to hear you? No, David, I'm coming to you from the basement of a parking garage in Washington, D.C. Okay. But they call me Deep Throat for a totally different reason. <laughs> so Jeff came on to the show about a year and a half ago, two years ago. He is a political consultant. He believes in democracy. He is on the far, far left of the spectrum. If there's a socialist running for office, chances are They've hired Jeff Blackwood under a different name, his real name. We're not going to tell you what his real name is because he's going to talk candidly with us and he doesn't want to jeopardize, uh, you know, future gigs. We've talked a lot about this show. Welcome back, Jeff Blackwood. Thanks. We've talked a lot about Paul Pelosi He is the husband of Nancy Pelosi, that family conservatively speaking, is worth $200 million? Uh, Yeah, probably. And you were listening to the show, and I've been calling Paul Pelosi an inside trader. He's been trading away ever since he and Nancy were married, and he supposedly shares a bed with our speaker, and his trades are public knowledge. Is that correct? Yes. Tell us what we know about Paul Pelosi's trades. Um, Okay. Thanks, David. So first, um, before we get started, let me give a shout out to Matt Stoller, who has really sent me down this road uh, a lot more than I normally would have gone. Matt Stoller is a progressive uh, policy expert. I think you know him, right, David? Yeah. Um, He's written about monopolies. He has a book out on monopolies. Yeah, Yeah. he he, he recently he's been big on antitrust and on China. Um, You know, he calls himself a progressive, not a socialist. I think he used to work for Bernie Sanders on the on Bernie's uh, Senate Budget Committee staff, maybe. Right. So, you know, what I love about Matt Stoller is that he's not a leftist, um, but he is the I think the best frenemy of the left and that he's a progressive and he's just a harsh critic of the left, but all of his criticisms are, are apt, I think. So I always uh, listen to him and what he has to say. And what he, what he's been saying for a long time is that 
the left doesn't understand business and finance. And if we really want to uh, know exactly what legislation to pass or exactly what's wrong, rather than just kind of screaming, capitalism is bad, look at all these bad guys, we should really try to figure out exactly what's happening. Um, and that'll, you know, at least let us know our enemy, perhaps lead to better, more specific policy. Um, or or, or I don't mean to interrupt you because I'm, I'm just really excited about this and I'm glad you called me and wanted to talk about this. If we become financially literate, the 99% could beat the, the people who call them capitalists at their own game. For example, when we owned 25% of the banks in 2009, if the left understood what that meant when we bailed out GM, if the left understood what a corporate bailout was, we could literally use our tax dollars to buy corporations. When we did, the, you know, Alan, Congressman Alan Grayson came on the show and he, at the top of the, the, uh, the COVID crisis, when we were bailing out the airlines, he said, for the amount of money we're giving or lending the airlines, once again, we could buy the airlines and own them. They would be state run. But, and, yeah. but, yeah. but yeah. we don't yeah. understand how that works. Go you ahead. Know, one thing I, you know, I, I forgot about Alan Grayson. He, uh, he used to be a hedge fund manager, right? So I'm sure he knows far, far, far be nice. more about all of this stuff than be I nice. do. I be don't mean nice. that as a, as a criticism. I, you know, I well, I think he. he I don't sorry. think he was a hedge fund manager. I think, I think he. Well, I don't know. He's you know, he's pretty brilliant, and he probably has done stuff like that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I, I think when he talks about policy, at least on domestic policy, I won't talk about uh, certain foreign issues, but uh, right. on domestic policy, even on this stuff, he's very good, even though maybe he's personally benefited from it. Um, regardless, um, so uh, in any case, I encourage people to follow Matt Stoller. And, um, and you know, so I started looking into, into uh, the trades of, of members of Congress. I'm going to put a, a link here and I'll mention it all verbally too. It's app.capitaltrades.com. Uh, capital is spelled O-L, uh, not A-L, mm -hmm. in this website, app.capitaltrades.com. This is a, it's a new website. It's only been around for a few months. Everyone should bookmark this and check it all the time. It is, it is a, it's a company that has made a very nice, thorough, free database of all um, um, trades by members of Congress. Okay. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. Bookmark this, you know, don't forget about this site. Check it all the time. You know, I was just checking like, Hey, uh, you know, since, you know, Patrick Leahy announced his retirement today. I'm just curious. What does he own? He actually doesn't, he doesn't trade anything. Um, and, and I, and Bill Clinton, sorry, <laughs> someone put in the chat, Bill Clinton, um, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren haven't traded anything. Um, I looked at who owns, who's been trading crypto. It's all Republicans. Um, and there maybe oh, a couple this is amazing. This is um, Richard Blumenthal. Oh, Richard, Bl oh, Richard Blumenthal. He, he's into all kinds of stuff, man. <laughs> um, this is unbelievable. Uh, he's buying up, uh, he is buying up defense stocks. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's invested in private equity firms. He's, he's invested in all kinds of stuff. Richard Blumenthal. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, Democrat from California 
Rokana. No, we'll get to him in a second. Scott Harvey Peters. I don't know him. Okay, he just bought stock in the Bay Area Toll Authority. What could that have to do? What could that have to do with the fucking infrastructure bill that just got signed into law today? Oh my God! He's a Democrat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is amazing. And so if you click on the far right side of, of any um, row in, this, in the search results, there's a little link that looks like a little arrow with a square. That, that links you directly to the house.gov uh, document, PDF document of the actual disclosure for that actual trade right. digitally signed by that member of Congress. Okay, And, and you see here also um, they, the, this database has labeled trades according to self, spouse, or child or unknown um and you know if you look up pelosi's trades you'll see a lot of self more you'll see more spouses more spouse than self but plenty of self as well and for 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 nancy pelosi and her husband paul pelosi um you know having net worth of 200 million dollars combined or whatever uh each trade they make is usually at least a few hundred thousand dollars in a single trade, um, often several million per trade. And, you know, and sometimes there are multiple trades like this per day. Sometimes they're not any for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, I, we, as, you, as you referenced, I, I heard you talk on the show a few months ago. I don't I remember what stock it was, if it was NVIDIA or, or Google or, or Microsoft or what. But um, Well, hang on. I, I, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, I, I can't believe what I'm looking at. The, um, Nancy bought a million dollars worth of NVIDIA. NVIDIA. What is that? So, yeah, this is a, this is a hugely important company. I, I thought I might need to explain this company. Okay. NVIDIA. A million and a half. I'm sorry. She's been, I'm sorry, she's, they've bought, hang on, in 2021, she's bought close to $2 million worth of NVIDIA. She's bought uh, close to a million dollars in Amazon this year, $2 million worth of Microsoft. She bought, no, I'm I'm sorry, she bought $3 million. She and her husband have traded uh, fifty-three million dollars total in assets, probably this year alone. I would. Or How much? Over, over fifty million. Um, maybe maybe this year and last year. Uh, I saw that somewhere. I think is maybe this past two years they've uh, traded over fifty million dollars worth of um, stocks. But so you know, if you go every line, you're going to be you're going to be screaming. Uh, <laughs> we need to do English. this. Let's just do this. Let's make this like a weekly feature. Yeah, you know, I thought about, you know, as you and the Ralph Nader radio ever have the uh, corporate crime reporter. Yeah, I can. I mean, as the uh, as the uh, Capitol Hill stock trade portfolio reporter, I, I'm actually I'm not going to say that I'm going to do that because that just takes more time than I have. But uh, um, this is incredible. Uh, this is incredible. Yeah, let, 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 me, let, me, let me go on. So let me talk about NVIDIA, though, a little bit. Yeah. Um, NVIDIA, it's spelled N-V-I-D-I-A. The symbol, stock symbol is N-V-D-A. Um, you know, probably anyone who's uh, into computers definitely knows this company. It's an extremely famous company. It's almost as, as important as, uh, well, as basically as Intel. Okay, so let me just explain to, to people who aren't so computer literate. You know, you have a you have a CPU, the, the the processor in your in your computer that 
is where the main calculations for the computer take place. And you might also have a GPU, which is a graphical processing unit, okay? It's, it's basically like a CPU, except much more powerful. Now, the GPU market has two, uh, two sectors which have grown in terms of its consumer base. People who are into computer games and need extremely uh, high-end GPUs to 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 um, render the graphics in their in their fancy computer games, and people who are mining cryptocurrency, they'll buy many GPUs because they're more powerful than CPUs, and they'll just put them on a little small frame and you know get maybe dozens of them and have them with fans hooked up and just running twenty four seven, you know, using a bunch of electricity um, to just mine cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, many other uh, tokens. So um, because of the crypto boom, there's been a huge buy-up of GPUs as well as people wanting to buy video games. In fact, GPUs have become uh, kind of hard to get during the past two years of COVID. And then the supply chain issues are just making this worse. So because of all that, NVIDIA Corporation stock has, in my opinion, been the best stock of at least this year, if not the last two years, but particularly this year. Um, and uh, and so you'll see that um, the Pelosi's, I'm not gonna necessarily distinguish between uh, Nancy and Paul, have bought both stock and options in NVIDIA, um, just like they have with uh, other uh, tech companies um, like Microsoft, Google, other big names. Um, and part of, the, part of what I wanted to do today, as I told By you- By the way, Bernie, zero trades. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, said, yeah, zero trades for I did the three other people I looked up, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, and Patrick Leahy. Although I think Patrick Leahy gets paid off by the entertainment industry in, in a number of other ways. Um, I think yeah. you, you might know about that, right, David? I, I don't know. He's 81. I understand he he's quitting to become a lobbyist for the National Association of Kidney Stone Manufacturers. That's what I understand with Patrick Leahy. But go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, part of the payoffs he gets from the entertainment industry are they, they give him cameos in movies. If oh, right, that right. And right. things like that. Right. Um, but, um, you know, he pushed all these kind of anti-piracy laws to help the movie industry uh, lose, stop losing money from downloads. But they were very invasive against internet rights. But anyway, um, so, yeah, I wanted to explain, you know, what some of the, how do some of these trades work? I think everyone knows probably, hopefully, how a stock trade works. Um, but, mm, maybe not. Uh, you know, well, I can explain that too if yeah, but, if, if someone wants. But that's okay. Uh, by we, the way, people in the chat, you can feel free to ask questions. Maybe David can text right. them if they need to. But, but you know, since I've limited time here, let me just kind of jump to options. Okay, um, you know, so especially from 2008 onwards, we would often hear about uh, derivatives, and then you know, we most of us just kind of uh, our eyes. Uh, gloss over when we see details and we just kind of get, okay, they're doing something fancy. sounds really bad and really risky. Okay. Um, and, and, and some of them are pretty complicated, but, um, stock options are the simplest type of derivatives. They're, they're so simple that people even don't even really refer to them as derivatives. Usually when you're talking, reading someone that's talking about derivatives, it's usually more complicated ones. But the first step to understanding derivatives is to understand the simplest ones, which are um, stock options, which come in two types, call options and put options, put P-U-T. Um, just to not overwhelm everyone, I'm, I'm not going to explain put options, but they're basically the same thing as call options, just with a different well, uh, so way. So basically... That, and I don't understand this, but 
you know, like an eighth grade education of this would be you're placing a bet on a stock to either go up or go down. Correct. Sure. Is that what options are? Well, there's a there's yeah. Let me there's a couple more details. So, you know, when you buy a stock, you're you're placing a bet on whether or not it goes up or down. You're betting that it goes up. Right. Okay. Uh, that's called being long the stock, or you could be short the stock. You could, uh, you know, be betting that the shares go down. Okay. And but within those bets, there's no time frame built in. It's just however long you want to be in that position, um, and there's no certain price levels. Uh, built into the structure of the trade. It's just whatever you feel like um, getting out at whatever mm-hmm. price. But in this, but it's uh, a call option in, and uh, again, I'm not going to talk about put options, but it's really just the same thing, more or less. So in, in a call option uh, or any option, um, it's a bet on a particular price of the stock and which side of that price the stock will be by a certain date. Okay. And the dates are always just the way it works, but they're always Fridays. Um, so if you want to place, you know, so I'll just take an example. So, you know, Apple was trading around $150 today. All right. Now, if you want to, you know, trade an option tomorrow when the market opens, you know, the market is stock market in America is open from 9:30 AM Eastern to 4:30 PM Eastern Monday through Friday. And during those hours, you can also trade not just stocks, but options contracts as well. So if you wanted to um, say trade, trade a call option on Apple for which is an expiration date of this Friday, you can make a bet like this. I see that Apple's trading stock prices at 150. I'm going to maybe bet that it'll be above 155 by the close of market on Friday. Okay. And you'll pay something for that bet. And, um, uh, if you win, if it closes above 150, then um, technically the way the option is structured is that uh, you get to buy the stock at the price of 150. So maybe it closes at 157, okay? So you could buy the stock at 150 because um, you you bought the right to do that by buying the call option, you're buying the right to be able to do that. Um, and then you can immediately sell in the market for a $2 profit because it's trading in 157. So actually what most people do is they don't bother going through those, all those steps. They'll buy the right uh, and, you know, they may pay 50 cents or a dollar for that right. And then when, if they win, it's, you know, close to 157. Instead of exercising the option, which is what you say when you're actually using the right to buy the stock, which requires putting a lot of money. You have to put up $150 per share. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, you, you you may have bought this option for 50 cents, and now it's the contract itself, that right, is worth $2 because anyone who has that right could, could instantly buy shares at 150 and sell them at 157 So something you bought for 50 cents, you can sell on the options market back at $2. And that's how you how you can, instead of putting up a lot of money to buy shares, um, you can make a similar amount of profit by just putting up a little money. But the risk is this thing ends on, on the, say, this Friday, right? So you, there's when anything in finance, there's, anytime there's an upside, there's a downside. The upside is you get to leverage a small amount of money into much bigger multiples of profit. In this case, my example, 50 cents turns into $2. You quadruple your money, okay? Instead, if you had bought a share that you had 150 and went up to, went up to 157, 
okay, you've made seven out of 150. That's not a huge percentage. It's certainly not, you know, 300% as if you uh, bought at 50 cents and sold at $2. So that's why people trade options. Huge amount of potential upside for very little cost input, um, yet a lot of risk because right. it has this built-in um, deadline, okay? Now, as I said, most people, they'll just trade back the call, buy 50 cents, sell for $2. Or if, it's, if Apple falls below 150 in this example, you'd get zero back. You just lost your 50 cents. Very rarely do people actually exercise the option and go through the process of using that right to buy 150 the shares at 150 because it requires so much money. That's part one. And two, if you're buying shares, you're betting on it going up even further. So you, there's, there's two reasons why people generally don't exercise the options. It costs a lot of capital. You people usually are who buying options don't. So even is, is this what money. is this what? For example, for example, yeah, Pelosi's been exercising, which is crazy. Okay, because it requires, like I said, a lot of money, and it, it requires you would only do it if you believe the stock is going to go up even higher. Okay, so when you're buying the call option in the first place, you're betting on it going on the stock going up. Right. Mm-hmm. Then if you're it, most people, like I said, would just sell the contract back and, and net the profit on their on how much their net right to buy is worth. Very few people exercise the call option that is use the right to put in more money. You have to you still have to pay, you know, the, this this price in this example, 155, that's called the strike price of the call option. So you you still have to buy the shares at full strike price. The money you put in the first place, that 50 cents, that just gives you the right to do this, right? So and that right is worth something now because the stock is trading above 155, it's at 157. So you then put in 150 per share. And if you're doing that, it means you want to hold it because you think it's going to go up even more, right? Right. So I just wanted to mention that, like, you know, the amount of capital involved in order to exercise options is... is but let's is talk about the insider... Yeah. Let's talk about the insider trading. Okay. So sure. there, there... I remember reading about a guy named Bacchus. He was a congressman from... I think it was... I'm sorry? Max Baucus, senator from Minnesota? Spencer Baucus, from Al- oh. a- congressman from Alabama, and he was the ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee in 2008 when Fed Chair Ben Bernanke and Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson went to Capitol Hill and said, capitalism is dead, you need to pass TARP. And Max, uh, Spencer Baucus was in the meeting with Nancy Pelosi, and he said, I'm not making this up, I'll be right back. That's amazing. And he got on the phone with his broker and shorted the stock market, shorted General Electric on privileged inside information that only he and Hank Paulson could know about and it was perfectly legal, perfectly legal. The laws do not apply to Congress. They can, they've altered it a little, but not much, right? Um, yeah, so, okay, I, I just looked at Spencer Box. In 2007, so this was before TARP, TARP was in 08, he was um, ranking member on House Financial Services Committee and he was, investigated for insider trading, um, uh, trading call options. Um, so by the way, I, I should say, you know, I described buying uh, a call option, which gives you the right, and you basically 
that's a bet that a stock's gonna go up. You can just as well sell a call option uh, as the opening trade, and which means you think the stock's gonna go down. Um, so if you if you follow their trades, will yeah. you outperform? Well, so okay. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think probably yes. But let me let me mention a couple of facts okay so okay we're, the, we're out of time i have to warn you we're out of time okay. so you're gonna have to come uh, back you're gonna have to come uh, back geez. next week okay uh, well uh, i was gonna just mention real quick that the stock act that was passed in april 2012 is what um forces these disclosures by the, the members of congress before that they were only required to disclose once a year but now they have to disclose once every within 45 days of a trade, which is still way too long. If you want to benefit from their trades, you, you might be waiting a month and a half after they make it to get the public disclosure. So it's a little hard to to use them to follow and make money off of because you don't get real time. But how is this legal? Job. How is it legal that Nancy... Because they're, they're the ones who make the laws about what they're allowed to do, you know? <laughs> but why isn't the media following these trades? Why aren't we... Why aren't we... How can you not follow the multimillionaires in the Democratic Party who purport to be for the working stiff, but they own shares of... Well, one of the, the, the biggest trade Paul Pelosi made this year was on exercising call options on Google. Uh, I, est- I estimate he probably made a profit of uh, $6.8 million, uh, by doing that. That's just one trade, you know. Um, and the, the media did ask, because there was a lot of news coverage of that particular trade, ask Pelosi's office um, about this trade, and her office said, oh, the speaker does, is not involved with her husband's trades, <laughs> uh, LOL. Um, but, you know, what, you asked me about insider trading. One trade that I was trying to figure out, you know, obviously we're never going to really know are they insider trading. I mean, we can just assume, but, like, we don't have hard evidence. Well, the one trade that looked the closest to, like, being probably uh, pretty clear was Nancy Pelosi in July of last year bought um, – uh, over a million dollars worth of uh, Salesforce uh, headquartered in San Francisco, or not headquartered, but has a major office building in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then on January 1st, um, Salesforce announced an acquisition of Slack, the, the messaging system for um, workplaces. If they announced on January 1st, you know, that deal has been in the works for months, right? And she bought stock in July. You know, that there's a lot of people in San Francisco work for that company's major employer in San Francisco. That, that kind of brought a lot of tech into the city rather than being in, in Silicon Valley, right? Salesforce. So she must have known about that, bought stock in July, and, you know, has made a pretty penny on that. So, and no. Let's, let's do this. True? We have to wrap it up. We have to wrap it up. Jeff Blackwood is the nom de guerre for a political consultant deep within the bowels of the far left of the political spectrum. He's a political consultant who advises some of our favorite candidates, most of whom don't get elected. But uh, maybe if we could uh, start start coming back and let's go over these stock trades. It's very, 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 you know, the website, once again, app.capitaltrades.com. Capital spelled O-L. Everyone check it out. Look up what everyone's doing. Follow their trades. We should give and- stock tips. We should create an index. <laughs> we have physicists here in the Zoom room who, those are the people who create sure. these indexes. We should figure out a way to come up with a Jeff Blackwood index 
an investment the, index. The, the thing is, you, you don't get the data until later. In fact, you don't even get the exact prices or money they spend. You they only give you ranges of this is a trade between one and five million. I mean, you know, I it's not useful. It's not so useful information. Um, when Nancy but, Pelosi has her weekly press conference, these are the questions that why did your husband buy five million dollars worth of Apple stock this week? Why did he so sell? Said, to- her office says she'll say he does his business. He's an investor. I do my business. We don't talk about and it. And they should keep asking the question. Nevertheless, it's the <laughs> like most like important question to ask. George W. Bush, where are the weapons of mass destruction? <laughs> right. Jeff Blackwood, I can't tell people how to contact you. Thank you. We'll talk next week. Contact me, please. (laughs) Oh, everyone, check out Zephyr Teachout. She just announced for State Attorney General of New York today. Um, Check her out. Great. I'll talk to you next week. Great job. Infuriating. Thank you. Let us now go to, that was unbelievable. Let us now go to Humboldt County. Returning champion, David Cobb. He's been away for two weeks. We missed you. David Cobb ran for president on the Green Party ticket. He managed Ralph Nader's campaign in Texas. And you've been away for two weeks. Before we talk about what you want to talk about, help me out here. You, you, you say don't fetishize politics. You've been very helpful. And I've been saying on this show, I'm not leaving the Democratic Party. Paul Pelosi is that I'm of the, you know, I read Jacobin and they say, you know, we have to be the worm inside the Democratic Party that starts throwing these people out. How can you when you read about Paul Pelosi trading in in August, like 10 million dollars, the wife the speaker trading back and forth, 10 million, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, NVIDIA. How can they survive this? What, what is... Because people will still vote for the Democrats because the Republicans are worse, are progressives. That's, that's, the, that's the, 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 the noose that they have created around merely electoral politics. And again, like I feel it, like, you know, I, uh, you know, David Feldman, that I get a lot of grief from some Democrats because I refuse uh, to join the Democratic Party. I'm a green. I refuse. uh, And I get a lot like there are a lot of greens who hate me because I uh, agree that progressive Democrats need to be supported. And, you know, so I get grief from both sides on this equation. But to answer your question, they're getting away with it because in electoral politics, uh, the, the really the only leverage that you have is your vote, right? So again, I say, yes, engage in electoral politics, but I'll say this. My quick read is that the Democratic Party has, has assessed, and so far correctly assessed, oh, environmentalists, organized labor, uh, women's groups, peace groups, the entire broad organized progressive constituency uh, uh, they're going to vote for us no matter what because Republicans are worse. So they basically take the progressive constituency for granted. And Feldman, there is a corollary that goes with that. In electoral politics, if you've been taken for granted, you just got taken. Like the problem is that progressives have not built independent power and independent demands. Let's take a 
let's take a, a lesson from looking at the difference between uh, the, the Tea Party and how they approached electoral politics. Because remember, like the Tea Party began as an organic, outrageous anger. Hold on. Stop. Hang on. Every time you hear that bell, Paul Pelosi got another tail in hell. Another horn. In hell. <laughs> I don't know what that meant. Uh, that wasn't my bell. Wait a second. You're saying that the, the Tea Party was organic? The Tea Party. Let's just back up a minute. Remember that the Tea. So pop quiz, Feldman. You know, you, you follow this stuff. Where did the Tea Party begin? What It was a reaction to what? There it was uh, an op, the guy on CNBC, Sarah. I can't remember his name. Was did a did a rant. So here, let me let me help you out, uh, and, and and I'll invite your it, it was the bailout of the banks, the troubled asset relief program. Right. And uh, so, uh, rather than be coy, I'll just sort of say it. So remember that the crisis that they were reacting to happened when Obama had won the election, but he had not yet taken office. George W. Bush was still in office, but he was a lame duck, right? Mm -hmm. And so the Troubled Asset Relief Program happened when Obama and a host of neoliberal Democrats went into the White House to negotiate the Troubled Asset Relief Program. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was neither an Obama nor a Bush plan. It really was a bipartisan. Oh, let's protect the market. Right. From from the crash. And we can it, there are people far more uh, skilled than I am to describe exactly why the casino was coming to a collapse. But the point I'm making is TARP was a uh, an absolute uh, government uh, bailout of both Wall Street and the banks, and don't forget General Motors and a whole host of others, right? And the Tea Party, when it first began, it literally was a populist outrage about all these literally trillion, what ended up being trillions of dollars going to Wall Street and big banks in corporate America. And you know what, Feldman, last time I looked, I thought that outrage at corporate abuse and corporate power was supposed to be a Democrat or a leftist talking point. That's our wheelhouse, right? Right. Here's the problem, and it's heartbreaking, that because Obama, and again, remember, I worked on Jesse Jackson's campaigns in 84 and 88, so you'll get nothing but like the acknowledgement that we elected a black president. But because it was Obama who was coming into office that began to implement this, what you saw was progressives refused to join uh, the protest. And I know because I'm literally eight blocks away from the Humboldt County Courthouse. And I went down to that courthouse when it first started and when the, when the, when the, the protests were truly organic, bottom up. The Koch brothers weren't controlling that. These were ordinary people, and it was happening, I know, because I was talking to my uh, colleagues. It was all over the country. People were pissed at a, at a, at a bailout of Wall Street and, and big bankers. That went on for at least three or four weeks. It was organic. Nobody was controlling it. People were pissed. And politics, like nature, abhors a vacuum. And about three or four weeks in is when Dick Army and the Koch brothers and the rest of those Republican 
assholes then sent in uh, organizers and sent in buses and sent those big fancy placards. They took over that that populist. Well, uh, the the, the I, you you know more about this than I do. What I what I understand is it started on CNBC in the chat room. They reminded me of the name Rick Santelli, who was being funded by somebody who wanted a, a fiscal hawk who was either getting Koch brothers money, but, you know, on the same team. And the minute TARP. Uh, was on the table, they began, it was, they called it AstroTurf. They called it an AstroTurf uprising. They were paying, you know, Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife and Dick Army. They were paying for the buses for all we know outside that. And, but this is the point, yes, everything that you just said, and that was about, look at, go back and look at this. That was about three weeks into the actual people just rising up. My point is this. If we as leftists and organizers and trade unionists and environmentalists had actually jumped in there and said, this is outrageous, and we had actually helped to navigate and control that, we could have inoculated that movement from actually the takeover of Dick Army and the Koch brothers and so forth. Because, and, and let's be clear, Dick Army and the Koch brothers are now outraged about corporate America. They are corporate America. Right. Right. Like we co progressives made a mistake by not actually leaning into that movement. And right. that's my point. Right. The Tea Party, like, like the this orientation, they don't say we're going to let the the Republican Party leadership tell us what to do, right? And they don't stay within the confines of what the the chattering class and the consultant class tells us uh, that, that they're allowed to do. The the whether it and like Trump is just the the worst outrage of it. My point is this. Uh, David Feldman, that I think that the left continues to make a mistake by not making demands and holding Democrats' feet to the fire. Like, they just don't do it. And this is a mistake in electoral politics in the United States. Now, part of it is because uh, we got this horrific first-past-the-post winner-take-all election system, the, you know, the global South uh, doesn't use it, uh, and it makes movements more effective. But I will take this opportunity to shift now to say uh, that comment. And because what I do want to talk about, because it happened in my absence, I want to talk about what happened in Virginia, but I also want to talk about what happened in Buffalo. Okay. Because can we, can, we, two, can we put a pin in that in one second? Because I want to hear your take on India Walton up in uh, Buffalo and, and uh, Yunkin in uh, Virginia. But Financial literacy. I think most of us don't understand how the stock market works. We don't understand finance. So we play a different game. It's the same way we go to work and we play a different game than the people who are in charge of us. So they're able to exploit us. We're at the job for every reason other than money. We tell right. ourselves, we, well, I'm bad with money. I don't, it's my friend. There was a profile in the Washington Post 
that's just was beautifully written about these people in Pennsylvania, McDonald's work, McDonald's workers who went on strike. It's a beautiful story about these kids who wanted $15 and how they took care of one another and the tragedy in their lives, the tragedy of the town and the exploitation. But they genuinely, they were friends. And they said, the thing we love most about working at McDonald's is at one o'clock, we close and we go to a diner and hang out till seven in the morning eating fries. These are my friends, these are my family. And that's music to McDonald's ears, of course. This is family. You're not here for money. But if these right. but these kids suddenly woke up and said, no, we want fifteen dollars. And we want your effing money. And by the way, let's be clear. Oh, and kids, you can still go and eat French fries together and listen to music like you're yes. the, the unit was the workers. Right. The relationship you had was the workers. McDonald's was not facilitating that. Like, right. Uh, so let me ask you about the financial literacy on the left. I hear a lot of theoretical talk. But when I ask, well, why don't we, instead of bailing out the the banks, why don't we own them? And they, they and they go, I don't know. Huh? huh? Well, next time. Like, how about this? Next time uh, that I come on, uh, let's talk about public banking, because remember, I'm one of the leaders of the California Public Banking Alliance. I'm very proud to tell you that uh, I I was part of the the effort that in California, we actually passed the first public banking law in the country in 120 years to allow the creation of local or regional public banks. We're negotiating right now uh, with the regulators to come up with the rules. We're gonna be having public banking in Los Angeles and in San Francisco and in Oakland, uh, you know, within a year. Like- so, but we, but, but what you need to do with, and what we need to do uh, on the left is teach, create a mindset of the government doing what corporations can't. In other words, when an airline goes under, instead of helping the airline, we nationalize it. Of course. But this talk, but we, the, the vocab, we don't, we lack the vocabulary to to Again, to I'm understand to... that nationalization is a good thing you failed this your airline failed these routes this they have to service these routes you can't do it we're nationalizing it. We have to get the American people to and again to I to agree. think like, hey, you know, the police, the fire department, the post office, our soldiers—they work for the uh, the government. They're pretty competent. Why can't we have pilots who work for the government? Why can't we have steward airline flight attendants who work for the government? We have to change the mindset of the American people to understand that the civil service is a good thing. It's efficient. It's better than corporate America because there's transparency. 
I agree with everything that you said, and that's part of the reason that I am, you will continuously hear me say that we the people are hallowed words in this country, and they should be. They're the first three words of the U.S. Constitution, and they remind us that when done properly, we are the government, right? Government really is an effort for us to collectively make the decisions about how to organize our society. And the mistake that uh, the neoliberals who are controlling the Democratic Party have made is that they genuinely believe that the marketplace, the private uh, right. uh, capitalist marketplace is a better way to organize society. And they are fucking wrong. There's right. just no if, ands, or buts about it. That is an incorrect, erroneous idea. And that's the reason why the billionaire class are so comfortable within the Democratic Party. But there isn't a debate. It's so friggin' frustrating that we don't see a debate anywhere in America that government can do things better than corporate America. We, we have kids who are being brainwashed in our schools and by their parents who have been brainwashed that government, government doesn't create jobs, that they're a hindrance, that the demonization of government workers has to stop. It's well, just so frustrating. I share your frustration, and uh, if yelling at people was an effective organizing strategy, that's what I would do, because that's my first go-to, right? So uh, what I would say is this, uh, David, like, remember at Cooperation Humboldt, we're literally building from the bottom up a local uh, community organization that is working with the Weot tribe uh, and others to, to, to create worker-owned cooperatives. We've got a community land trust that we're about to start doing affordable housing. We're building, we, we are not yet building, but we are in pre-development stage for a series of eco-villages. Uh, we are at the cutting edge. But you of- know, it's all great. It's all great. It's all great. But, but there is a nonsense on my side it, it that's not government that's not go that's not demanding that nope. our that's not demanding from our government that they do the hiring and firing that's not demanding to stop the transfer of our tax dollars to contractors who who overcharge and underpay the police in america work for the local government they get many of them get paid too much, but so it's me, still me, more efficient me, than Blackwater. So I've got eight minutes before I've got to actually uh, facilitate a California Public Banking Alliance right. call. So I'm going to take you take your critique seriously and take it head on. And I didn't get a chance to talk about Youngkin uh, okay. or or uh, Walton, uh, but maybe maybe some other time. But I'll tell you this: you know what else we're doing uh, here in little old Humboldt County? Cooperation Humboldt just signed a fee-for-service contract with the Department of Health, our County Department of Health and Human Services, to begin doing street outreach for houseless people. It's a four hundred thousand dollars over three-year contract. That why did we get it? Because we said not only are we going to provide the uh, distribution model that that you're asking for, but we're also going to do human-centered design process 
using empathetic interviews to ask these houseless people, what is it that you really need? How can we best assist you? Oh, and by the way, we built into the budget that within six months, we're going to start hiring other houseless people to begin to advocate for themselves. So for these uh, uh, folks who don't actually have housing now, we're going to actually provide them. And our job at Cooperation Humboldt through our street outreach team is going to be to teach them, here's what you have to do to be able to submit your invoice in order to get paid out of the contract that we just did. But wait, there's more. That was CARES money. Because we're also negotiating a scope of uh, a service agreement with the city of Arcata uh, to uh, and this is ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan Act. It's two hundred seventeen thousand over three years, where we're going to do community organizing uh, using the same basic tenant uh, uh, principles of empathetic interviews, human-centered design to do door knocking in a predominantly Latino uh, community that's been vastly under-resourced, and begin a process of working with the American uh, with the American Red Cross and, and Redwood Coast Energy Authority to help them in that community the point i'm making i have is, a problem with the red cross i have a uh, the red cross i got problems with virtually everybody including myself so you know, we <laughs> but the red that. cross listen all right all i'm saying is it's a two hundred seventeen thousand dollar government contract where we're saying we are negotiating and have successfully done not one but two fee-for-services with government, taking government money and actually putting it directly uh, into use for ordinary people. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Democratic Party was nowhere to be seen through any of that. Of course not. You know, and that's the Democratic Party's fault, not my fault. Yeah, very quickly. Let's start with India Walton in Buffalo. Should the mayor of Buffalo be stripped of his Democratic Party credentials since he ran as a write-in candidate and didn't respect? To be clear, say it all. Because what happened in Buffalo was that a Democratic Socialist of America, member of the Democratic Party, beat the incumbent mayor in the primary. So she was the Democratic Party nominee. And so rather than accept and acknowledge that, the right-wing developer class and the incumbent ran a well-orchestrated, well-funded writing campaign against the Democrat, right? Uh, And then won. So now the question that Feldman is asking me, listeners, is should this corporate sellout who literally, literally challenged the Democratic Party uh, endorsed and, and nominated candidate be stripped of the Democratic Party credentials? It's a ridiculous question. Of course they should be if there was any semblance of uh, respect for the internal processes and rules. It is just a different version of how Bernie got screwed by the Democratic Leadership uh, Council and the Democratic National Committee. What happened to Indira Walton is the same exact 
phenomenon and the 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 fact that there is no outrage uh in the progressive democrats almost nobody is talking about this is it reminds me of what we saw happen in connecticut with lieberman like there's this idea that oh if we just go into the democratic party like they are not the leadership of the democratic party is not your friend they are not going to play by the rules they are going to change the rules and it is heartbreaking to watch time it's lucy with the football and charlie brown like Oh, this time, maybe the Democrats will actually play fair. The leadership of the Democratic Party are not our friends. They are our class enemies. And like, I wish that it was not constantly being shown. But what's more heartbreaking is the lesson continues to be taught. But the average member of the Democratic Party is not learning the lesson. Right. Well said. Well said. He should be kicked out of the de- Mayor Brown, I believe is his name, yes, of Mayor Buffalo. Brown. He should be kicked out of the Democratic Party. They're saying, well, that's vindictive. That's no. He ran against the Democratic nominee. Just because you call yourself the the establishment you're not the establishment. You're the renegade. You're the one who's blowing things up by running as a write-in candidate. You're the you're the dangerous radical, the dangerous anti-democratic, small d radical. Doctor Harriet Fraud joins us. Hey, hello, Harriet. By the way, I want you to know before I because I, I again I have to go jump, uh, facilitate a meeting of the California Progressive uh, uh, Public Banking Alliance, Harriet. I got a, uh, a contact who listened to us uh, on uh, It's Not In Your Head, uh, who literally wants to help create a local version of Cooperation Honorable in her community. So I'm just saying it works. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, And so I can't much. wait to be back next week. Great, it's good to have you back. You've been away for two weeks. And Dr. Harriet Fraud has been away for one week. She was vacationing in San Francisco, which we have been trashing all day. I'm going to assume you were at the Ivy Getty wedding with your husband. The the oil heiress got married. Bye. Thank you, David Cobb. Follow him on Twitter. How do people contact you? Uh, David Keith Cobb on Facebook or cooperationhumble.com. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Fraud, welcome back. It's good to see you. So you were in San Francisco. Yes, I was. I was healed by San Francisco. That's where I left. I left New York. I lived in San Francisco for 12 years. But, you know, I was married several times there. My kids (laughs) were born there. That's but that's not the only reason I hate San Francisco. (laughs) Nancy Pelosi. This is everything that's wrong with the I'm going to be quiet. I just want to say one thing about San Francisco. It's beautiful. It's so easy to call yourself a social justice warrior in San Francisco with all the white, rich people living in those three million dollar houses and all the poor people defecating on the streets. They can Nancy Pelosi, uh, Kamala Harris and G- uh, Gavin Newsom, all are products and, uh, and Nancy, Pelosi, they're all products of the San Francisco Getty machine, which is we're you know, we're big on 
LGBTQ rights as long as they have money. Or as long, yes, but class is invisible. However, Chesa Boudin is also there, and that's the positive side. But And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. They put all their social problems into Oakland, their evil twin who has the manufacturing, who has the mass of poor people. Right. But it is a beautiful place. Of course. It's not, though, because underneath it is it, it when you see the ugliness of, of, of Ivy Getty getting married while people are defecating mm-hmm. on, on the streets. I didn't even know she was, but I'll tell you, after a revolution, everyone should get a week in San Francisco because it's so pretty. And uh, then it'll be for everybody. I lived there for 12 years and it's uh, it's infuriating, quite frankly. Yeah, the inequality is and, and the sense and the entitlement. This is what I what, what drives me crazy about the homeless problem in San Francisco and L.A. and New York. Yeah, we're looking into it. You know, uh, Nancy, we're trying to figure it out. There's a very simple question. If you own property, your this this is basic rules. If you own property, it is in your best interest for housing to be unaffordable. You want you want the rents to few people in San Francisco who own property. And those who do own very expensive property. They're as expensive. They were even more last year. They were even more expensive than Manhattan. It's obscene. And wherever you have that expense, you also have its Siamese twin homelessness. So the cure to homelessness is homes, pure and simple. Affordable homes. Or free homes. Or free homes. It's not taking the basics of life, whether it's shelter or whether it's food or whether it's clean air or clean water, or whether it's oxygen that you can breathe, that sh- those should not be commodities. Those should be basic rights because they are survival. And that housing is a commodity is the reason there are so many homeless. Right. And the mistake, well, it's not a mistake. We bring in realtors to solve yeah. the homeless problem. That, that's like asking the tobacco companies to help us cure cancer. Exactly. If you're a realtor, you're the cancer that causes homelessness. Yeah, in Germany, they just um, ruled that I think it's 137,000 units of the biggest real estate holders' apartments will be given to the people and under the control of the government to be given to people as affordable housing. Of course, I mean, but that's a transitional step. Housing should not be a commodity. It should be a right. And that that's obscene to take life's necessities and try to make money off them and put people out on the street where they can't wash their hands frequently, they can't be sanitary, and they're exposed to the elements. It's, right. With every boost in the rentals, there's another group of people falling out onto the street. It's obscene. It's obscene in New York. It's obscene in San Francisco. It's obscene in L.A. And we lie and we lie about the causes of homelessness. We say, well, Reagan 
you know, yeah. he, he let the he let the people out of the mental institutes or uh, they're mentally. These people need psychiatric help, not homes. That's the argument. That well, they some make. of them do because their idea of community um, mental health care was just releasing people into the community with no care at all. What you could have, which has been very successful, is the conversion of sort of single unit apartments into a place where people who need help can live and get it. It's it's simple. A woman did an experiment where she took an old single room um, hotel, which were very run down, got money, made little units, but a big collective units where people were helped, where they had films, where they have collective games, there were people to care for them. And the Medicare bills, because they were mainly elderly, went way down because people had a community. Right. It's obvious. But as long as you're wedded to capitalism and its commodification of basic needs, you're sunk. Right. Right. There's no European country that is that bad. Even France, which has its huge inequalities, you're not allowed to evict anybody in the cold months of the year. That's not uh, happening here. People are getting evicted and it's not being. All the time. Uh, Stephanie Rule is a business correspondent for MSNBC. And she was on MSNBC and NBC this morning saying that, yes, inflation is up 6% for the year, but the dirty, dark secret, she said, is that Americans have more money than they're willing to admit and they can weather this inflation. They're, the stock market's- on the street. Yeah. No, even in San Francisco, which is so pretty, and we, you know, there we used to go to Pete's and have a coffee in the morning, and because it's right near the um, motel that we stay in, and there was a homeless woman washing herself outside. There were two homeless people sitting inside with a cup of coffee all day. You saw them. I mean, is that your solution to affordable housing? Of course not. Well, it's painful. And and they're blaming George Will had a piece in The Washington Post. He was talking about this new book, San Francisco, where they blame the progressives for the the homelessness because they 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 talk about how they blame the progressives for attacking the symptoms in San Francisco by giving clean needles. They're saying, you see, you're encouraging homelessness by advising drug addicts on how to shoot properly as opposed to the class issues this is the the, the criticism of they're blaming the left for That's homelessness so silly. and right. of course you could address class issues and then you wouldn't have that you know you could legalize all drugs the way they've done in portugal and cut their drug population by 75 percent right because all drugs are sold by the government and with the funds they give people treatment, whoever wants it. When they come to buy the drugs, they're offered treatment without a big judgment. If they take it, the government pays for that. And they've reduced their drug use to, you know, of 75%. And that's what they do in Uruguay, because they didn't want to be en route to the Mexican drug corta, um, cartels. That's, right. that's obvious. So I was I reading uh, yesterday 
that the millionaire estate tax has been lifted to 12 million, which means if you're the idiot child of a yeah. wealthy person. You get 12 million and that isn't all you get, of course, because you can transfer paintings and there's no, that's not counted. The art collection, you just give it to Sonny Boy or, or a little girl there and it doesn't count gold, which you just take out of your safe deposit box and put it in your child's. It's obscene. You know, before Reagan, it was $600,000, which is already a lot. Right. And the Democrat, you know, I, I'm going to, I hate to beat up on the Democrats, but those kids who never have to work and don't, and they get their $12 million, they wear the Democratic Party like a fashion they, 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 they have like this Ivy Getty who got married, had Nancy Pelosi officiate her pre-divorce ceremonies. And to them, the Democratic Party offers these worthless human beings. And I do. I think if you inherit 12 million dollars, you are worthless. You, the Democrats give them enough uh, liberal bona fides just enough so you can look caring and compact. Like I'm, I'm for the LGBTQ. Or whatever. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. No, it is an obscene. The Democratic Party is a corporate party. Ever since Clinton, who uh, betrayed the Democratic Party and created some more gender justice and a little more racial justice while he went for NAFTA and allowed the outsourcing of millions of jobs to China, to Mexico, and wiped out the working class. And then Trump has captured their anger, but that's the culprit. I, the Democratic Party is another corporate party. It's the same thing. It's corporate party right, light, rather than the Republicans' corporate party heavy. And they're both capitalist parties. We don't... In our democracy, we don't have freedom of choice. We have two capitalist parties. Yeah, let me run. I, I hate to end up there. They're like like Jimmy. There's some people who get fixated on how corrupt the Democrats are that they almost find solace in the Republican Party. I, I, you okay. can't. But to me, the Democrats are like high level mobsters. Whereas the Republicans are sloppy, gutter uh, captains who work for the big mafia that finds itself in the Democratic Party. The, you know, the Republicans are Tony Soprano. The Democrats are Meadow, the daughter who goes off to Columbia and becomes a lawyer and doesn't want to, you know, they become much more sophisticated. They're they're mobsters with clean uh, fingernails. Yeah, they're almost that. worse. They're almost well, worse. Neither is worse. They're both capitalist parties. Who's more and dangerous? Paul Gosart tweeting out these horrible images of his you know, physically attacking AOC. He's a dentist. He's out of his mind. Marjorie Taylor Greene is crazy. She's a gun nut. 
Is she doing Trump, more damage? Well, Trump does a lot of damage because he pa- he captures the righteous anger of a white working class that's been dispossessed by corporate America and turns it against black people and women and handicapped people and gay people. And that is sick. But they're not and, walking the corridors of Goldman Sachs. They, Paul Gosar and and Trump. They don't get any respect from Goldman Sachs. And do they? I if they give them money, they get respect. They respect people who give money, no matter who they are or where they got it. And they're both corrupt. The Democrats feign concern, and that is difficult because it's hypocritical. And they do have some good people like Katie Porter, like Barbara Lee, like AOC, and the squad. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, they are both capitalist parties, and they serve the corporate elite at the expense of the mass of people. Right, right. What did you come home from San Francisco with? What was you, was there anything where you you gained some kind of insight from being on the West Coast that was was altering? Well, the problems are the same as on the East Coast. But what I came home from because it really impressed me, I had been reading the case of Deaton book um, Deaths of Despair that pointed out that America, unlike our European cohort or Scandinavians or the other wealthy countries, our life expectancy has gone down for the last several years, which is a a gross aberration. Mm -hmm. Every year, every three years, another year was added to life expectancy, except in the United States. And what I thought is the end, these are deaths They're all by deaths of people who don't have college degrees. It's interesting, white people without college degrees. And they die from addiction, thanks to the Federal Drug Administration allowing OxyContin, Mm -hmm. even though OxyContin was shown in its trials to advertise for a far longer period where you didn't need it. And so people were addicted by the end and desperate. They allowed the legalization of Oxy. And so the biggest is ODs. The second is heart and liver problems from drinking. And the third is suicide. Those are big growth areas in the non-college educated white population. Because those are are the people who have been disenfranchised by the United States with its export of jobs to China and Vietnam and Bangladesh and Mexico and so on. Those, and they have lost their standing and they try to hold on to their whiteness as the only thing they have left, which is pathetic. Right. But that maybe the new surge of the labor movement, which has blossomed, there's 250,000 people out on strike now which has blossomed in spite of a compromised AFL-CIO, in spite of the absence of a vibrant social socialist alternative on the ballot, in spite of the absence of a dominant media 
um, that is socialist. You go to France, there's Humanité on the newsstand, that's the communist newspaper. There's Le Monde. There's several others that are socialist newspapers as well as the capitalist newspapers. We don't have that. No. And in spite of all that, labor got the message, you know, we're supposed to be essential. We're risking our lives and we're still getting crap pay and being treated as if we're dispensable. No, we're not. We're leaving. That is amazing. And it really gives me hope for the American people that they are doing that. Besides just listening, those that listen to Trump or those, it's primarily the Pentecostals and the um, fundamentalists that think Trump is the embodiment of God on earth. Right. Otherwise, he's, he's getting less popular. But that we have, that the American people have caught on. Just in the words of a John Deere striker, he said, we were essential in 2020. Pay up, it's 2021. Right, right, right. right. So, you know, that's the antidote to the deaths of despair, which are decreasing our life expectancy. Also, Americans used to be the tallest people on the earth. We're not. The Germans are taller. The Norwegians are taller. The Icelandic are taller. And there's one other group I forget. But, you know, we're not. We're not properly nourished with junk food. We're not, because food is commodified, which is disgraceful. And so I think there is hope in people standing up and saying no. And I hope that a party emerges that says yes to the things we believe in, because that is a very healthy sign from the population, not from the leadership, certainly not from the leadership of the Democratic Party, or from the AFL-CIO. Right. You said the workers are waking up. There are about 100 million Americans who are could work. One third of the workforce right. is not working. No, it's not worth it. Five million in August left, and then the Great Resignation continued, and they're, they're signing off. Another five million left in, in uh, September. Americans are not going to work. We're hearing about the rise of the robots. That's the new thing. They want to replace everybody with robots. Yeah, which not, they can't. caring, you know, labor right. is some of the biggest kinds of labor are taking care of people, which robots can't really do. But what what they're doing is people are saying, look, of course, if you could afford to help support us through COVID, we could all get a universal basic income. Tax the rich. Stop spending your money on creating wars around the world. And uh, we can live. We can all live decent lives. That's sort of what they've learned. Mm-hmm. And they've learned, we were told we were valuable. Uh, Mayor de Blasio had a ticker tape parade, but took away the extra incentive pay for essential workers. Wait a minute. People aren't that stupid. And, you know, I was encouraged. I had, I was calling the bank to let them know I'd be away so they wouldn't stop the credit card thinking it was fraud. And I Well, got you are that. Dr. Harriet fraud. So that must have been. Difficult. <laughs> yes, that's right. That joke must, you must have been. You Go ahead. I'm sorry for that. It's okay. Anyway, I got 
a woman on the other side and uh, I said, I'm really angry that I've had to wait so long. Although, of course, I know it's not your fault. They could hire six more of you and then I'd be answered right away. And uh, also they could pay you more. And she said, I apologize. I said, oh, no, we should both apologize. We should have TD Bank apologize to us. You for giving you a lousy salary and speed up and me for keeping me wait so they could make more money. She liked that. That's <laughs> And then you know what? I do the same thing. This is my yeah. the, the, I I would last year. It was a Bernie pitch. Everything was anytime yeah. I anytime I had somebody on the phone, it was a Bernie pitch. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And then at the end, she said, is there anything else I can do for you? I said, yeah, you can help me transform this country so that nobody has a lousy job like yours. And she said, I'm working on it. Right. <laughs> it was such a nice connection with somebody because, of course, those are the truths that people feel. I am given a lousy job so that banks can make more money. Right. And customers are kept waiting and having to do it themselves so the bank could make more money right. and so on. And Obama bailed out the banks. He didn't bail out anyone else. And actually, black people lost more wealth during Obama than ever before. Yes. Yes. Because of the subprime mortgage that yes. he didn't bail people out. Just yes. the banks yes. with no strings attached so they could use it to lobby to make sure they got even more. And Kamala Harris was the attorney general. She could have prosecuted Steve Mnuchin for falsely foreclosing on people of color. Absolutely. But he donated to her campaign for Senate and she didn't prosecute. Now she wonders why nobody likes her. <laughs> She's depressed. Yeah. Because nobody yeah, likes you. This is the hypocrisy of a corporate democratic party and of a party system with two capitalist parties and no choices. Well, how do you not get infuriated all the time at this? Well, partly because I do think that people can be reachable, not those people, of course, but the people I talk to all the time and give me hope. You know, there is a lot of hope around. And also I have a congenital positivity. I don't I don't know why, but I do. I feel hopeful. I've become an impossible human being because I live in New York City. So I, I run into old friends who want to see me. And when you know, they want to be Democrats. They want to be good people. But then when you explain to them that they're horrible, that they are horrible and their kids are horrible and it's indefensible, they uh, they just shrug. They 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 know they're horrible, but they need to be they told they're it. horrible. But they're not the people who are galvanizing now. It's the people who do the basic work of this society who are galvanized. And also there are a lot of progressive people. When I used to ride the subways before I got scared, I, I always made Scared that you were gonna push somebody? I'm, I'm afraid that I'm gonna push somebody into an oncoming <laughs> I'll train. I'll stay away from you on the subway. <laughs> I'm terrified you. of riding the subways. I, just, I don't know what I'm capable of. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
No, but I mean, people are very angry and they don't have, it's not like France where when people are angry, they think of the social roots of their anger and they address it politically. Here it comes out in awful personal ways. Mm-hmm. It's sad. And if we have enough of a movement, I think that will change that. And I do believe it can change, you know. I'm old enough. I've lived through a lot of revolutions. Cuba, South Africa, although I think they went out of the frying pan into the fire, all the Soviet republics, Russia, you know. That's amazing. Right. Right. It's... uh I guess I need to just spend some time in the woods away from uh, all this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to thank you for being here because we have a special guest, Peter Kalmus, here. And his, it's his wife's birthday. So I want to I want to get him out of here. And it's good mm-hmm. to have you back, Dr. Harriet Fraud. How do people contact you? Either at HarrietFraud.com, my website, or hfraud at gmail.com. Fantastic. We love we love you and we're glad you're back. Thank Me you. Too. Thank you. Bye bye. Hope to see you next week. Good. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. When we come back, we're gonna talk about climate change. But first this. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Right. 
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. He will be joining us in just a second. Not just a second, in about two hours. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Let us now go to California, where Peter Kalmus is standing by. He is the author of Being the Change, Live Well, and Spark a Climate Revolution. He is also a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Everything he says is not a reflection of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. His opinions and concerns are independent of everybody other than Peter. But I agree with everything you're going to say. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back, David. And 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 thank your wife. I know it's her birthday, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah, for, thank you. It's just the way it turned out. I was literally uh, in the middle of baking a chocolate cake. So uh, uh, I'll get back to that when, okay. when we're done. So last time you were here, you were being very negative. I've been reading your tweets. <laughs> Thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. COP26. We met, we dodged a bullet, we have an agreement, and we're good, right? John Kerry, our climates are, we've solved climate change. Did anything good come from COP26? Oh gosh, this is what everyone's talking about right now. Um, you know, I, to be honest, they were gonna meet today, right? China and the US, Envoys, and have, have some discussion. Do you know what came out of that? Because I haven't had a chance to, uh, to read up on well, it, let me yeah. ask you a question. Yeah. Suppose John Kerry, the climate czar, stayed home. Joe Biden stayed home. Nancy Pelosi stayed home. And they said, you know what? It doesn't matter what the world does. It matters what we do in Washington, D.C. Green New Deal. It has to be in this BBB, the Build, build Back Better. Put the Green New Deal into Build Back Better. Otherwise, this stuff is just performative. Well, you know, yeah, um, it's it's been this weird thing for the last 10 or 15 or watching, you know, the first United Nations meeting was in 1992, the Earth Summit. And it seems like ever since then, it's like that that meme of the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other. And like, when's China going to do something? And China's like, when's the U.S. going to do something? The global countries from the global south are like, you know, hello, you guys caused this problem. We're paying the price now. We've, we've like contributed a tiny percentage of this and we want to develop too. So where's our money, Lebowski, right? So it's this crazy, all this finger pointing and nothing's happening. Since that Earth Summit in 1992, uh, as, as much roughly the same amount of emissions uh, in that 30 years have been thrown into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels as the entire period of human history before then, because it's a, it's growing exponentially. And it's, you know, the past four years, what, what has happened in the yeah. past four years? Right. Um, so, you know, the, the best, one of the best things the United States could do is just figure out how to, um, to, to have some really meaningful policies here at home. It's just, you know, we, we had Trump. When Trump was elected, I thought it was a kind of an anomaly. And now, you know, I'm incredibly, as I think most of us are, concerned about what's going to happen in 2022. Um, and even when the Democrats controlled both houses, they still couldn't do anything. I mean, the official, like I said last time I was on, right, it just bothers me so much that the official Democratic 
party platform still embraces subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, which is the like absolute first thing that we should stop doing, right, is, is actually giving taxpayer money to the industry that's actively destroying the planet. So I'm a little bit at a loss. I was deeply disappointed by COP26. One of the bright spots for me, um, I just finished writing a piece uh, for the LA Times, which went live like literally a minute ago. And um, one of the things I say in that piece is that one of the silver linings or one, one of the good things that came out of COP26 is actually that they're, they're going to meet again in a year to you know try to come back and actually hammer something out as opposed to the Paris Agreement 2015, that was COP21, where they said, we're gonna come back in five years and, and like revisit this. And then, you know, there was COVID, so it ended up being six years, which was this COP, COP26. So, um, you know, the other, one of the other things I point out in this piece is the time, the, I really don't think that the public understands how short the time scale is. So, you know, you, you, you said I was pessimistic before. Um, so I did some math. I, I read some IPCC stuff um, uh, for writing this piece. There's about the carbon budget for, for keeping things under one and a half degrees Celsius of global heating, which is about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And everyone should understand that over land, global heating is about twice as fast. So that's like 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit of global heating over land, which if you're having like a 110 degree heat wave, suddenly you're basically having a 115 degree heat wave. So it is significant, especially on those high extremes. Um, anyway, to have a two thirds chance of staying under 1.5 degrees Celsius of global heating, there's about 200 billion tons of carbon dioxide that humanity can burn in the form of fossil fuel and dump into the atmosphere. And then it'll stay there for like, you know, a thousand years from now, uh, about 25% of it's still gonna be up there, mm. right? So this is a very long time scale thing compared to the time scales of human civilization. So the 200 billion tons, every second humanity emits over 1000 tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. So second, we just said in, in those three clicks, 3000 over 3000 metric tons were burned on this planet and put into the atmosphere. So that's 40 billion tons, over 40 billion tons a year. So that pencils out to about five years left at this rate. And of course, the rate is actually still increasing globally a bit, um, which is, again, why the 30 years thing, the doubling time, you know, 70 divided by 2% right. per year, which is about, so that comes out to, to 30 years. So anyway, that one year between now and the next time they meet, it's incredibly precious. So there'll be four years left to do something. There'll be four years left because it's very, you know, based on COP26, there's not a whole lot that's really going to happen realistically in this year. So what I wrote in my piece is that we need to, we're, we're still in society, is still in business as usual mode. We're still flying in planes. You we're said that there were the biggest, I'm looking at your piece in the Los Angeles Times, which everybody go download it. The one that just came up like two minutes ago. Yeah, the failure at Glasgow and what needs to happen next yeah. by Peter Kalmus. Like the, you say that the biggest delegation to Glasgow was the oil companies. What the hell the are the- industry. What the hell are the oil companies doing there? I don't know what they're thinking. That's what I mean. It's not, we're still in this business as usual mode. Like we can keep doing things that we've always been doing 
and just a little bit more electric cars and we'll solve this. Like that's what everyone's thinking right now. Um, they're thinking that, oh, maybe we have to work with the fossil fuel industry to solve this, which I think is complete bullshit, right? They've mm -hmm. been lying since the 1950s, since the late 50s when they, they hired their own internal scientists. In 1990, ExxonMobil has this like evil PowerPoint slide with all the delay tactics, you know, like emphasize the uncertainty, you know, find climate, Find scientists with credentials that you that you can pay off to lie about this. Create confusion, create delay. You know, hire lobbyists to prevent things from happening at the state level, at the national level. All of this stuff Exxon laid out in, in 1990 uh, was given to all the other oil majors through their nefarious little, you know, oil like petroleum institutes and whatever. And it, it played out just like they planned. And that's the part that breaks my heart. This Where are we with the states? The, the state's attorney generals a couple of years ago were suing ExxonMobil because they knew about they, they're claiming we yeah. you knew about this 50 years ago and did nothing. Did they yeah. settle that? What do we know? I'm, I'm not sure. There's been so many lawsuits. Most of them don't really pan out, which is disappointing right. because, you know, this this is what I mean by a social phase transition, that, that society has to go through the switch from business as usual mode to emergency mode, because right now the legal system as well still reflects business as usual mode. Look what the legal system did to Stephen Donziger, who tried to who got this huge multi-billion dollar settlement against Chevron for polluting the hell out of the Amazon basin in Ecuador, right? And then um, the Chevron came after him with their army of super fancy lawyers. Pri and got in a private court. For two, yeah, for two, he was under house arrest for two years uh, for a misdemeanor, which is unprecedented. And now he's going to jail for what, like 18 months or something? Right. I can't remember right. the number. Right. It's unbelievable. So, so even the legal system is still in business as usual mode protecting the fossil fuel industry instead of protecting the planet and our collective future. It's insane. So this is the year for the climate movement to realize. I think COP26 is a clarifying moment where everyone who's paying attention to, to what's happening with climate wakes up and says, politely asking the people in power, these world leaders, the corporate leaders, the people that control all the reins of power, probably a large fraction of whom are literally clinically sociopaths, politely asking them to save the planet for us, our kids, our grandkids, the coral reefs, the forests, is not working. And we can't expect it to work. See, I thought there was a chance that with the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, with people drowning in their apartments in New York City, like we went through last time, I thought there was a chance. We Last time we talked, it was before COP26, now it's after COP26. I thought there was a chance that the earth crying, the earth was literally crying that it's an emergency. It's saying, here's where we are in 2021, gonna get worse in 2022, worse in 23, worse in 24. It's gonna keep getting worse as long as you fuckers keep doing this. I never know if I can really swear or not. Well, you work at the, the Jet Propulsion Lab. I don't know if you yeah. know that things in motion stay in motion. I don't mean to yeah. get a little, I don't mean to get too esoteric on you. Well, when I mean, you look at Kyle Rittenhouse, yeah. think, about, think about Columbine, which was what, 1999. And now we have a, a kid the same age, as the trench coat mafia who shot up Columbine patrolling Kenosha 
with an AR-15 and he's going to get off because it's perfectly normal for a 17-year-old kid to walk the streets with an AR-15. You would think all these school shootings, we would get rid of AR-15s. It's such a great analogy. COVID is a great analogy. There's, it's like, it's like half of the people in the United States, like their brains just stopped working or something. And no amount of facts about climate change, for example, just to take that, to, just to take the issue that's literally on the verge of killing all of us, right? Basically, right. Um, no amount of facts is going to get that fraction of the population. Maybe it's 40%, maybe it's not 50%, but it's enough that with gerrymandering, et cetera, they can block action, right? It's a large enough fraction of the population. So that's the problem. That's what, without them, I do think that society would transition into emergency mode. And, the, 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 problem, um, the, the problem is there are too many Americans who claim that they are 100% committed to fixing climate change, but they have their finger in the energy pie you know let's let's that's part of the problem too and the the, the people in power like harvard is just getting out of fossil fuels now yeah that bugged me so much so that's my alma mater and it was personally offensive to me that we had to beg and plead with them we had to actually there were campaigns to elect um people who actually cared about having a livable planet, young people onto the Harvard Board of Overseers. And I think that was part of getting them to uh, to finally divest from fossil fuels. But as far as I'm concerned, sorry, Harvard, you get zero points for that because we dragged you kicking and screaming onto the right side of history when you should have been leading the way. <laughs> and it just, it bugs me so much that I don't, I just don't understand, David. I mean, what? Well, you're, what you it? don't understand, I, I'm, I'm teasing you, there, if you're a product of Harvard and I, I don't, you're brilliant, but people who are products of Harvard think that Harvard could fix this thing. And again, I keep saying that the, if you created the problem and Harvard created this problem, it's like asking the tobacco industry to cure cancer. What the right. hell is Bill Gates doing at the climate summit what is jeff what what the hell is jeff bezos doing there along with all the fossil fuel delegates and they left the climate activists more or less out in the cold so is this this is the un right this is the united nations right the united nations conference of parties yeah so i you know why did they decide to let the fossil fuel delegates come there like i would love to know i don't personally know like how that decision got made like who who phone who who called who who made the decision you know like who was pushing back against it who i don't know how that happened but it is completely fucked up and unacceptable let's talk about air travel let's talk about air travel uh professor ian faluna he's He's taking a sabbatical from my show because he teaches, but he's an atmospheric scientist who I would love you to meet. Uh, He says that aviation is, if it were a nation, would be the seventh largest contributor to greenhouse gases in the world. Is that correct? I want to say that again. I was reading a really good comment. Um, Oh, from the animals in the chat room. 
Yes. Yes, they're they're they they come and here. We, that that, that uh, Sir David King uh, says that we have to, what we do in the next three to four years will determine the future of humanity. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I right. agree with that comment. Actually, I, I know there's one year. This next year is absolutely critical. Like, if the next COP COP twenty seven is once again dominated by the fossil fuel industry, then one point five. I mean. Most climate scientists, only 10% of climate scientists still think there's a chance in hell that we're going to keep things under one and a half degrees uh, Celsius. of It's still physical, uh, physically possible, probably, if right. we went into emergency mode, that we could keep things under one and a half degrees. If I, I want to another year. Forget it. I want to be respectful. We're at the point where even one more year of, of wasting, we're, we're past one and a half degrees Celsius and on to the, the horrible possibly i in my opinion probably civilization ending realms above one and a half degrees celsius right. i mean people just don't get it i don't understand why they don't it's because it's a beautiful day outside and this stuff unfolds over the next 15 years and right. they can't they can't come away from today it's like a it's a heat wave in the winter and they're like this is great i'm i usually have to wear a fur coat and i'm walking around in right. my t-shirt right so this is what I'd like to do. We do have some brilliant people in the chat room who join us on Zoom. So I'd like to, in the remaining time we have, ask uh, them to raise their hand and okay. ask you questions. I know that Professor Marianne Cummings, I think she's up next, probably has a question for you. And while we're waiting for them to raise their hands, why are we spending $25 billion on this new infrastructure bill to improve airports shouldn't we just be destroying the airports shouldn't shouldn't people yes. isn't the, the, you know yes. the the, air, the rage should. where are people going what where, where do you have to go that you have to be there so quickly to get there on a on a plane even climate activists are still flying frequently and they still defend the privilege to fly frequently they still get mad at me when i point out that if this is genuinely a climate emergency, which it is, uh, and we need to divert fossil fuels to things that prevent people from dying, like the agriculture system, then we should start ramping down the stuff that's basically just convenience for for rich people, for the global rich. You know, only a small fraction of humanity has ever been on a plane because most of humanity can't afford it, the, the vast majority. So, um, you know, I know a tiny fraction of people will voluntarily choose to fly less. So that's not the way to create change. The way I see flying is it's probably the single best litmus test for whether or not our society has made this phase transition from business as usual mode to climate emergency mode. As long as we're still flying around, we're pretending that we can do business as usual and still somehow manage to, to deal with this climate emergency. And that's, that's in 1990, Maybe in 2000, you know, when the election got stole from Al Gore, we might have still been able to, to, to pull the potatoes out of the fire to save civilization without going into climate emergency mode. It's 2021. 30 years have passed. It's far too late to imagine that we're, that we're not going to see heat waves where a million plus people die unless we actually transition to climate emergency mode. We, 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 I wish we had another hour to talk about exactly what that means. But what it basically means. Well, your wife had that, a celebrate her birthday. Yeah, I get in big trouble. <laughs> the climate's falling apart, but you're, I'm kidding. 
<laughs> but uh, I, I have to stay like mentally and physically strong to keep I know, this day. I know. So it's actually, I'm not even joking. But um, what, what I would say is that uh, one climate emergency mode basically means that world leaders say, oh shit, this is an emergency. It is being caused by the fossil fuel industry. 75% of this is being caused by the fossil fuel industry. We should talk about degrowth and the role of capitalism. That to me, that kind of comes concurrently. But the direct cause of what's happening right now to our planet is the fossil fuel industry. That's the biggest thing that's threatening life on this planet right now. So therefore, we have to have a plan year by year to phase those fuckers out. And wait, right now, world leaders are doing the opposite. They're building new pipelines. They're building new power plants. They're, they're signing leases to allow these companies to basically for free go on public land and create new wells for, for oil and fossil gas, right? So that's not, again, that's business as usual mode. Once they start actually saying, oh gee, we have to, we have, we're about to lose everything. This is not okay for these guys to make profit off of this anymore. We're going to seize their assets. Sorry, you've seen this coming for 30 years and you've been lying to us. You had a chance to divest. You didn't take it. We're seizing these assets, making this a collective so that we can ramp it down on a quick time scale without prices going through the roof. Right? If we tried to ramp things down while the fossil fuel capitalists still had control, gas would go to $20 a gallon. Those guys would make more money than ever before. Right. The working class would be squeezed until they actually were rioting in the streets. So we need a way to ramp it down while keeping prices from going sky high. And the only way you can do that is to seize the whole thing and kind of to, to have control, right? And then you're, you are subsidizing the supply of fossil fuels, but you're doing it in a, with the design, the explicit design to phase it out as quickly as you can and to direct it to the places where it's needed most and to prevent like gross injustice where only the ultra ultra rich can have access to it. Okay, I'm gonna share you. We're talking with Peter Kalmus. Mm -hmm. He's a climate scientist, author of Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate yeah. Revolution. You I have can, a copy of it here, it looks like this. Yes. Good book, Didn't didn't. not too many people know about it because it came from a tiny little indie publisher in 2017 follow him on twitter at climate change and his latest piece uh, climate human climate human i'm sorry human. and his latest piece is in the los angeles times today it's entitled the failure at glasgow and what needs to happen next we have nine minutes let's go to saul he's a physicist in i believe cambridge massachusetts so close enough close enough <clears throat> hi hi peter uh <clears throat> So glad you're on the program. Um, I have a couple of suggestions. Um, one thing is I get the impression that part of the problem is that the climate crisis is too enormous and too multivariate to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And so people people sort of abstractly know there's an enormous number of drastic things that have to happen, mm -hmm. but that sort of makes people powerless. Mm -hmm. So I was... Um, I asked a question in the Q&A about what's, do you know of a good way to sort of summarize the overall situation and summarize the overall mm -hmm. options for what has to be done? And, and I, um, um, I, I suggested this, there's an MIT project that's, that looks like it's attempting to do that. I don't know whether it's really accurate from the climate science perspective or not. Mm -hmm. And yeah. item number, suggestion number two is that when you talk about ramping down uh, fossil fuel companies, um, 
uh, I thought maybe a good strategy might be to work backwards from what we have to do. So in order to avoid the following disaster, we have to stop, let's say, coal production by such and such a date. And then you construct a legal, then you very aggressively promote specific legislation to force that to happen. So for instance, you you may need to have a special fossil fuel license to um, sell fossil fuel after a certain date and nobody has such a license and uh, and um, and that would be a way of ramping down those industries. And even if it doesn't pass right away, it could focus focus the public attention on the need to do that and it could now, for instance, in this Build Back Better uh, thing, instead of, of you know energy companies negotiating from the point of view, from the starting point being, we want the same subsidies we got last year, the starting point is your company is going to be gone in, you know, in four years, and maybe we'll make that four years in six months. So it, it's kind of a way of negotiating strategy as well as a way of focusing. Anyway, so I would say it sounds like a good idea. You know, there's a lot of other policy ideas that I like a lot. And I, w I will say that in some sense that, how do I say it? The, the policy ideas aren't the, the problem. Um, you know, like I really like the idea of a climate income. I think it would, would work well with uh, uh, the, this sort of nationalized and ration approach that I was just talking about. Um, I like your idea too. The, you know, I think the, the ultimate thing that has to happen is you, you, you need, like you said, kind of an end date. Like if you know, if you say we're going to get to zero fossil fuels in 10 years, come hell or high water, and we're going to go, we're going to change this chunk in year one, this chunk in year two, this chunk in year three, here's the pathway. We get there to 10 years. Then suddenly, yeah, there's no point in investing in this stuff anymore. So it all kind of goes hand in hand. The problem is that, you know, as world leaders spectacularly just showed in COP26, as was showed by the, the, the great difficulty to pass even the teeniest little climate legislation in the, in the Build Back Better, right, which is not, not nearly enough, um, is that, you know, society hasn't decided that this is an emergency. There's still all this debate about it. And so I, th I think it all has to come from the grassroots. Somehow the climate movement I, I really think this is the only way that I see the climate movement has to get a lot stronger than it is now and maybe engage in tactics that are a little bit less polite than what it's done up to this point to sort of to, instead of asking world leaders and corporate leaders politely to please ramp down, make it so that they feel like they have no choice, that they're forced to. They lose their jobs if they don't. Maybe in some nations they uh, lose more than their jobs if they don't. So they become afraid that if they don't act, there's going to be repercussions for them. That's I, I don't see any other way to do it at this point because the earth is based, the earth will scream louder and louder every year from from now going on. So that will that's what's going to power this phase transition. Prop, maybe it'll happen from the grassroots mainly. Maybe there will be some world leaders that on a personal level realize that it's an emergency, like I do, like a lot of people are starting to. The, the people that realize it's an emergency, they're just not the ones leading the nations right now. So maybe there'll come, maybe it'll start coming from the top down too. I'm not sure, but but yeah, there's a lot of good ideas for policies. It's just, um, you know, we can barely, uh, we can't even end fossil fuel subsidies. We can barely, you know, uh, improve the train system here, you know, so 
Yeah, I think you're probably right that a massive, you know, massive popular movement is definitely necessary yeah. at this point. But it's hard to, you know, it's hard to start that movement when people are people don't have a clear conception of what's going to happen. Yeah, and I could try to I could try to say in like 30 seconds what I think that is. I don't know if that's yeah. worth it. Okay, so we're at 1.2 degrees Celsius of global heating right now. We're going up about a tenth of a degree per every five years. It's driven 75% by burning fossil fuels, um, about 15% by animal agriculture. The rest of it is mostly by deforestation. So we have to, and we see, we already see what this is doing. It's causing drought in some parts of the world, like California. It's causing flooding in other parts of the world, like the East Coast. It's causing massive hurricanes in other parts of the, the world, like the Southeast. Um, it's starting to cause famines in parts of the world, like Madagascar, which is being driven by drought. And all of this stuff is going to get worse and worse. It's causing sea level rise, which is going to cause us to have to abandon coastal cities, right? So, and many other things too, ecosystem loss, for example, tipping points in the Amazon rainforest. All of this stuff is getting driven by the temperatures increasing 0.1 degrees Celsius every five years because of emitting this greenhouse gas, this carbon dioxide, when you burn coal, uh, gas, oil, fossil gas on your stove, it turns into carbon dioxide, it gets reduced, you know, combusts with the oxygen atmosphere. And that those molecules, they prevent outgoing energy. You got all this sunlight coming into the earth. If, if, if an equal amount of energy didn't leave the earth, the earth would get hotter. And guess what's happening? That greenhouse, those greenhouse gases preventing that energy that, that is getting emitted from the surface of the earth going to space. It's infrared. So it, you can't see it with your eyes. It's a different uh, wavelength than the, the sunlight that's coming in. But it can't get out as much because some of it hits those CO2 molecules, basically bounces back down to the earth. So the whole thing is getting hotter because now you've got more energy coming in than what's going out. As it gets hotter, it starts emitting more of that infrared radiation. So then eventually more gets past that CO2 barrier and you re-equalize, you get the same amount coming in as going out, but the earth is at a hotter temperature right. and that's driving all this ice loss, driving all this stuff we've been talking about. Let me let me quickly- uh, that, we, that wasn't simple enough, was it? <laughs> well, why can't we just pray this away? I saw Carl Sagan explaining, I was just- okay, I, I'm gonna Carl cut Sagan Saul, I'm gonna, Saul, I'm gonna, I have to. There are other question. Yeah, John, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, Saul. Peter, Peter, this cop out twenty six. One thing that pissed me off as a vegan was how they did not mention animal agriculture. As far as I know, being a contributor to this whole mess, and they they use a lot of fossil fuels in the animal agriculture industry. So that's actually underestimated, I believe. Okay. And, um, and, and can I but they, they, they were feed, they were whole... eating meat. They had meat on the menus, meat and dairy yeah. products on their fucking menus. These hypocrites. These hubris ridden hypocrites. Well, they're flying in on private jets too. Yeah, yeah, but you know, we all know about jets, but vegans are. Pretty well down. Okay, John, I, I want to get to everybody because uh, it's his wife's birthday. I, I have a, I'm going to have to let him go because I want him uh -huh. to come back. Uh, if he comes back, we'll only take questions from the audience. Very quickly, Peter. The CO2, the cows, the, the meat, how important is it for people to switch to uh, a plant-based diet? Uh, it's extremely important. Um, 
And it's one of the things that gives me a little bit of hope because it's like a shock absorber. We could, in theory, if all of humanity, all 7.9 billion of us switched to a plant-based diet, that would suddenly eliminate 15% of the, the forcing from all of these greenhouse gases, right? So it's a little bit of a shock absorber. The thing that I will say is that I know from experience, like with my book and talking to people, that a teeny tiny, only a tiniest fraction of people will voluntarily make the switch. So that's the problem. We would need policies to make that happen. Right. One last question, Warren, very quickly, and that's it. It's his okay, wife's thank birth. you. Thank you. It's his wife's um, birthday. Th- th- yes. Happy birthday to your wife. Thank you, um, Peter. I appreciate it. Um, the IPCC has called for um, one flight every three years and 40 gallons of gasoline per year per person. Do you think that's enough to help us? One flight every well, it would help us tremendously, and it would it would shift the 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 social norms, the social license. It would be a huge signal to everyone that suddenly we're treating this like an emergency. Eventually, we have to get down. This is the thing that I, I don't. I bet most people in the public don't even understand this. Eventually, we have to get down to zero fossil fuel because when you burn that stuff, it stays up there for such a long time. It just accumulates. So even if you're we're, you know, we're burning 42 billion uh, t- tons of it per year right now. Even if we went down to like 10 billion tons, that would be like cutting it by a factor of four. But you would still have global heating and, and climate breakdown proceeding, just not as quickly. That's all. So, um, so, so yeah, it would, help. it would help a lot. I think one of the main ways it would help is just by sending that social signal to everyone and helping us get to that phase transition that we need to get to, to actually start thinking about this and treating it collectively like the emergency it really is. Great. Uh, um, thank you so much, Peter Kalmus, for joining us. Peter is a climate scientist. He is the author of Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution. Please buy the book. We want him to come back, and that's the best way to get him to come back, is to buy the book Being the Change, Live Well, and Spark a Climate Revolution. Follow him on Twitter, at Climate Human. And right now, go to the Los Angeles Times and read his op-ed page. It came out today, November 15th, 2021. It's entitled, The Failure at Glasgow and What Needs to Happen Next. Go to the Los Angeles Times right now and read his opinion piece the failure at Glasgow, and what needs to happen next. Tell your wife happy birthday. Thank you for doing Thank this. Thank you so much, David. What a, what a pleasure to talk to it's you. A, it's right. a privilege. Thank Bye. you for your work. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. That was alarming. Here is Professor Marianne Cummings. I believe you're up next. Is that correct? Yep, according to the schedule. It's good to see you. We didn't have enough time to talk on uh, Thursday's show. We're not, and we're not on YouTube. Nowhere near near enough time with Peter. I know. We have to get him to come back. This guy knows what he's talking about. Yes. He's amazing. As are you. Let's hear your response to all this. Oh, the climate stuff? Yeah. Oh, let me give you you a proper introduction. Okay. Professor Marianne Cummings is also a physicist, as well as a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. She's an elected official. What is your response to all this? 
Well, you know, I yeah, that's why I was so distraught when they stole that election in 2000. Because I'm not really a fan of Al Gore and a lot of other political stuff, but he was one politician who did spend a lot of political his political capital pushing concern for climate change and global warming. Back then? Yeah. Back when he didn't have to. You know, and he was called all kinds of, you know, he was made fun of all over the political spectrum. But uh, in in late, like in 1989, there were droughts all over the place. I mean, there, half of, of Illinois, you know, was suffering from a terrible drought and the corn yield was significantly down. And that was the first time I heard people talk. I was still in graduate school and people were talking, well, maybe there might be something to this climate stuff. But then, you know, the next year it starts raining and then people forget. And that's the problem. Uh, it kind of reminded me of uh, it, we did have an absolutely catastrophic environmental disaster in this country in the early 30s. It was called the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. And that was and that was a result of decades of bad agricultural practices and uh not, he, he's not my favorite, but Ken Burns did have a very compelling documentary on that subject. And literally, apparently in 1934, there was an enormous storm that swept through the entire country. The city of Detroit went completely black, like worse than, than, than a solar eclipse. And there was a pile of dust inches thick on President Roosevelt's desk from Oklahoma kind of blowing, being blown across the country. And yeah, fortunately there was a a soil uh, scientist from North Carolina University and his name escapes me, but he had been warning about this and there was a nimbleness to government, I think because already people were, the, the economy had collapsed, the structures of capital had collapsed. So it enabled people to, in government, to actually do something if you wanted to do something and if you had the boldness to do it. So um, so they instituted all these agricultural practices that had a profound positive effect. And by the early 50s, people were sort of forgetting about them. Like, why do we have to, yeah, I mean, this seems to be a little bit much overkill. This the Dust Bowl was a generation ago. Well mid-1950s, uh, little mini-dust bowl happened and people got freaked out. So, um, yeah, I think it's pretty bleak. And part of the problem we have is that we strengthened the institutions of global capital. Yes. We had a, we had a chance last year, that, you know, they, the Congress and the White House could have acted when, once again, COVID was collapsing the world economy and the and and the banks and the financial institutions were on their knees. They absolutely needed ultimately four trillion dollar bailout that we gave them. And at the very least, the progressives in the House and Bernie Sanders should have been just publicly railing about this. And I, uh, Matt Stoller thinks that they probably didn't even understand what had just happened. He was screaming about it. But um, so it's just and global capital preys on confusion. Peter Kalmus was talking earlier about how Exxon knew to just invest in confusion. 
we're heating mm-hmm. up the climate, so let's just confuse the issue. We we see so much confusion on other issues that we have a non-functioning government. They've confused everything. We're divided on anything, so we're incapable of acting unilaterally on yeah. something like climate change because he talks about seizing the oil companies, and I can hear Joe Rogan saying that's an overreach of government that's the next soon they'll be you know taking over our health care and i actually wouldn't know what joe rogan would say about this he certainly has said that you know we need to have you know, the that private that that privatization and profit be taken out of big swaths of the health industry healthcare industry right. because you know we just can't Look, um, I have a personal story from this weekend. Okay. I think it's going to have. Uh, so I was uh, going to go and help rake leaves and things, but my sister calls me and says, well, this is a bad time for you to show up. I go, why? What's happening? Well, mother's in the hospital. Right. My mother, who has been taking care of a, uh, a, a husband with Alzheimer's for a year and a half, literally, I think it was just collapsing from exhaustion. She has other issues on the but the thing is, is that they were in that emergency room for 12 hours. And I said, Di, you know, um, this is what's been happening for years and years. You know, as the hospitals have been becoming more for-profit or at least behaving like for-profit, they've been shutting down, quote-unquote, non-performing hospitals and, and consolidating and, this, and everything from the supply chain to just the uh, urgent care centers available. And now she had an up-close and personal uh, experience, 12 hours in an emergency room. Right. Now, it, with my mother, it probably wasn't the highest-tier emergency, but the fact that, you know, eh, I would say my parents are definitely upper-middle class by now. They live in a nice area, and even in that area. That's the state of our healthcare system. So when my nieces, who were who are Republicans, uh, could claim that, well, maybe some people don't need or deserve health care. And I have to say, oh, you've got medicine that's keeping you guys alive, or at least keeping from being a drooler. We have a health care system. If the system starts collapsing, which is what we have seen with COVID, we had a system that was just so fragile. So the, the for-profit motive, among other things, but largely for-profit on many levels, and not just the uh, health insurance, has made it so rickety and so non-robust that a, a, a pandemic, which we knew was going to happen sooner after we dodged the bullet with SARS-1, right. but we were warned for years and years, something like this was inevitable. As we cut down forests, as there was more crowding of wildlife and and uh, domestic life. And so, yeah, we, we collapsed. We Our system, our healthcare system isn't able to cope uh, capitalism is not able to cope. Capitalism unrestrained has given us a system so damn fragile that you know we have it has to be propped up by socialism, which it has been every twenty years or so since before the founding of this country. Um, and you know it's, uh, but we forget as soon as the crisis appears to be over, at least at least for people in the comfortable classes who vote. Wow. Yeah, so so uh, give your best 
to your, yeah. your family for us? And uh, are we out of the woods? Um, not yet. However, um, I, I see the upside of this because and my mother is amazingly robust, does not look like an 88 year old woman, but she's an 88 year old woman and exhausted from caregiving. And now I think people in my family haven't made decisions that they need to make. Right. Like, hey, they need to like literally hire more help, right. you know, things like that. But, uh, but it's which also, it would be in Build Back Better. I mean, this is the soft infrastructure that. Yeah. That, well, it, it's not that my parents need it. A lot of people do, though. It's just I think it's personally they just you want to be in denial. I think part of it is as long as my mother didn't need help. You know, and they were they, they could kind of pretend that life was the same. They, they've been opening up businesses and things this past year. So they go to the Irish club on Friday nights, right. you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, it's it it was not sustainable. And so but I think just more uh, to the point of this conversation, we people don't appreciate how much we rely on a system. You know, even if you have all the insurance in the world, if you have an accident and you're in a part of a country where first responders are not able to get to you, or you have a stroke and first responders are not able to get to you within that critical first 40 minutes. I mean, it's uh, people don't think these things through. It's the same way with, with energy. I mean, we have an energy, it's not even, you know, more windmills or more solar panels. We need an entire revamp of our system and our prioritization. In some ways, countries like Europe, as I said, have, who have been used to living in dense, dense populations on a smaller amount of land forever, actually have an advantage because these systems, um, they, they can change their energy systems a little more easily than we can. But I think what, Pete, what Peter was talking about is we have a mindset and the mindset is in the leadership. And we've got this, quote, professional class of leaders who feel that they ha are there because of, quote, meritocracy. You know, people who could probably not even make breakfast on their own right. have some kind of meta, you know, skill or something that they get to lead. And they have they are perfectly they are completely saturated in the propaganda that we need market based solutions. We have never had, quote, market based solutions for any national or international crisis. It just never happens. But, uh, you know, maybe if we had reasonable governance, if, uh, if, if the influence of these corporations and big money could have been kept at bay, we could have started a market-based sort of or quasi-market-based tax, <laughs> tax on carbon or things like that. But that time is literally decades gone. Yeah. If, there, if ever that could have happened, because I'm sure people would have started gaming that system almost immediately. Money is, uh, I've said this before, uh, and other people have said it, but it's just becoming so apparent to me. Money is a cancer because you watch it accumulate and then it has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I hate to bring up Jeffrey Epstein, but I was reading uh, <laughs> Michael Wolf, who's a great reporter, has a new collection out of his of his interviews that he's done. And he interviewed Steve Bannon and he got his hands on Steve Bannon's tapes coaching Jeffrey Epstein in the lead up to his arrest. 
Bannon was teaching him how to do interviews oh. on 60 Minutes. And he would buy only the best, I only guess. Only the best. And so I'm reading like Epstein, these transcripts of Epstein explaining how money works. He says, I'm a numbers guy. And once Wall Street got into algorithms and got confusing, it was turned over to people like me who were good with numbers. And my fascination with money is that it is the infrastructure of the world. Nobody really has $60 billion because you can't spend it. You, you can't own it. It's a, it's a fluid infrastructure that has to keep moving and the and I'm reading that and I go, well, that's, you know, he's evil, but that's that's what money is. And so it finds its way. It's water and water mm -hmm. will find its way into newspapers, newspapers, even with the Internet, newspapers were still profitable until venture capitalists needed to park money in they needed investments, so they started buying up newspapers and stripping them of their assets. Now we don't have newspapers in this. Alden Capital is buying up all these newspapers, stripping them of their assets. So we're uninformed, and this money goes everywhere. It goes into colleges, private colleges. So we get dumber and dumber because it's money that is accumulated, concentrated, and then placed into all these businesses and innocent institutions, but there's still, that money is still an investment. It's not a public good. It's still, it's still somebody's investment that has to turn a profit to create more money. So it's this, it's this cancer that I, I. Well, it's, we have a problem because we have allowed it to expand into spheres which it have never should have gone in the first place. And it was a shortcut for Democrats who were, and by the way, Harvey, uh, Harvey JK, our friend, gave a very interesting talk on all this at the uh, Progressives Democrats of America meeting this past uh, weekend in very very wonderful. Uh, it was introduced by our friend Alan, and it's a very well, wonderful summary of what has happened. But Democrats did take the shortcut. A lot of them wanted to get out from under what they considered the old-fashioned, creaky um, New Deal and World War II mindset of the uh, the, uh, of the FDR era. And, uh, and and even though unions to this day still go door-to-door -door for Democrats, a party that has largely abandoned most of them, um, it was much easier to raise money from, quote, much easier to run a, a campaign raising money than it is getting people rallying actual individuals and motivating them to go door-to-door -door for you. Hmm. And that's, um, and, you know, everything... Everything gets gamed if you don't have a collective set of principles that you all want to live by, you know? And I thought pe people, it was comforting to some people to think that business could just solve the problem. If we just let business run amok, we get rid of sexism, we get rid of racism because it's bad business to like not sell to people because it's, it's bad business not to hire the, the most talented and the brightest and all that kind of stuff. But what you were talking about wasn't so much a pileup of money. It's a pileup of power. Mm -hmm. 
somebody in the chat said, what are we going to do with our economy, clamshells? And I said, we have the same problem with clamshells. If clamshells represented, you know, wealth, if they represented privilege, the privilege of to have like that meal or that house or that car, it, it wouldn't matter what you did. We don't print the money. Even I learned from the nuns, literally from the nuns, that our whole economy is based on confidence that at the rock bottom of it is a system that is robust. And in times of emergency or in times of crisis, we'll back up, you know, the money if banks and businesses collapse. Because the full faith and credit of the United States means the ability to marshal all the effort and all the collective wealth of this country. And that's still the same because the banks still go running to us. And that's the, you know, the idea that government is the problem, you know, that that's such a a great propaganda tool of the Reagan era, you know, as they were sucking off the public teats more than anybody else. They were just, you know, the old, hey, you know, don't do what we do. Um, They can't function. It's it's it really this is not hyperbole. The the no. Reagan people, you know, George Schultz from Bechtel, Casper Weinberger from the defense industry, the the oil people, they all sucked off the teat of big government. And it's as simple as this. When Reagan mm-hmm. came to office, we're sucking off the teat of government. If you suck off the teat of government, if you get welfare, there's less for us. Mm -hmm. We need more money from the government. So we're going to call ourselves fiscal hawks. So that poor people don't rely on the government. So there'll be more for us to take. It's as simple as that. And you think it's got to be more complicated than that. And they go, no. It isn't. No, no I mean, um, I'm sure the explanation might re- might lie more in the anthropologists and the behavioral psychiatrists or psychologists than any uh, uh, model of government or economics. Because, you know, the, the, there was a um, um, economist that I started reading a few years ago. Uh, Blythe is his last name. He's at um Mark Blythe, he's at, uh, I think, University of Rhode Island, or he's at Rutgers. He's at and Brown. He's at Brown, Mary. Brown. Oh, Brown. Rhode Island. Brown. Okay. That's, that's where he's at. And he has pointed out that any time any economic uh, measure of merit, whether it be the unemployment rate or the inflation or the CPI or anything like that, will inevitably get gamed. By the, by the system. It will be, right. ga- be gamed by people with no other constraint than maximizing their own power and their own influence or making their own point politically. So, you know. Well, in our um, limited time left, let's turn to yes. something uh, more pleasant. The right. Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which everybody's following, yeah. he's going to be acquitted, correct? Well, there was a, I mean, 
after having watched the uh, the tapes and read some of the New York Times had transcripts of some of the testimony, I'd say that there's no way he gets on. He he's getting convicted on first degree murder. And when he had he the first guy down, he he fired several shots. Yes. Yeah. But if you watch that whole tape, that guy kind of took off after him and he was, you know, he was down on the ground. The guy kept running. Now, a sane person would, of course, not run toward a guy with an with a AR-15. All right. But this guy was the crazy person, the guy that was just, you know, a few minutes before taunting all the people trying to blow up this uh, gas station or to store calling one of the uh, guys with the guns the N-word repeatedly. I mean, the guy was, apparently that guy was literally just, I said he sounded crazy. Apparently he was yeah. just released from a mental institute. Right. So the fact that he kept charging, uh, and then then Kyle fired, the, the Rittenhouse fired. I think the, the whole point was at no point was Rittenhouse ever the aggressor, ever going out after these people were going out after him. I think manslaughter probably would have been you know, because manslaughter is a very broad charge is, is probably the most malleable uh, homicide charge you can bring. But the uh, the jury, the jury did ask if they could consider lesser charges, which is why I think that. But ironically, the one charge that I thought for sure was a slam dunk was the uh, the weapons uh, possession charge. And apparently the prosecutors didn't do their homework. Um, there's, there's different laws. That you, there's laws about purchasing weapons, but there's laws about actually having a weapon in public. And they're so you can't off. buy an AR-15 if you're 17, but yes. you can fire one if you're 17. Well, you can have it or you can, right. you, you, it's legal for you to have it if it is not, if you can't conceal it under your coat, like a right. sawed off shotgun would be illegal. I think it would be legal for everybody, but you know, so it's some these, okay, it's some crazy law, but that's neither here nor there because the prosecutors who had a year to prosecute this case, I mean, these guys are looking as inept as the OJ Simpson guys. <laughs> right. So, and so anyway, I, you know, the whole point is, is that I'm not it, it's this is the kind of sensationalistic trial because, you know, people on one side of the political spectrum get somebody to hate, which is fun and easy. And people on the other side of the political spectrum get somebody to get to get angry over their treatment of it. it and the whole thing, the whole thing was politicized and the story just Nothing. And I really hadn't paid attention to it. But when I saw the whole video, I'm going, wow, this is nothing like I actually thought happened. And, you know, furthermore, one thing that the people still really aren't men mentioning is just the utter uselessness of cops. You know, the Black Lives Matter protest, who and the cops were harassing protesters earlier that day, just like they were in downtown Aurora. But people actually committing crimes actually like setting cars on fire and that it was way worse in Kenosha than it was in, in Aurora, but still a good portion of our downtown was badly damaged and one uh, business completely burned out. And what were the cops doing? Absolutely they were, they were, nothing. they were the ones in plain clothes, setting fire and doing the well, looting. I think the, some of the kids I saw, cause I kind of broke curfew. They, they set curfew and I was over a friend's house and I drove through the downtown going, what the hell? And I saw kids, you know, basically smashing things. They didn't even look like cops. They, they look like kids 
A lot of people claim to be Antifa. But the point was, is that the cops didn't protect. They, you know, they, they didn't protect property. They didn't go after people actually committing real crimes. And the problem with that is, is that locally were all these Black Lives Matters whose cause everybody agrees with because most people in this country, regardless of race, has had bad interactions with cops and, you know, have had unfortunate interactions with cops, not the extreme, but, you know, we do pay them. They get a good salary. They get pensions and benefits and all the other kind of things that people are more and more not getting. Plus the cash, plus the cash they find on bodies that they don't have to declare. Not only that, but this whole war on drugs, the, you know, sort of the, the seizure laws that were just so hideously unconstitutional and uh, You're talking about asset forfeiture voted by both parties asset so, forfeiture um, we have to yeah. wrap it up because we have a, we have a, a very special guest peter b collins mm-hmm. and professor michael krasny who i haven't seen since my wedding and he is this is a treat <laughs> so and hopefully no, i believe the, uh, he's I'm from michigan you, you went to michigan right i went to university of michigan i think professor krasny is hmm. from Michigan. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so well, thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist. She is also an elected Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois. There is Professor Michael Krasny, who I have not seen in a couple of years. And he's standing up. Peter B. Collins joins us. He was a recent inductee to the Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame. And please introduce us to Michael Krasny, the legendary, the legendary Michael Krasny. (laughs) Thank you, David. It's uh, certainly my pleasure. And uh, Michael Krasny is a real treasure here in the Bay Area. I happened to run into him at the post office a couple of weeks ago, and I relayed his regards to you, and you said, well, let's get him on the show, and he readily agreed to join us. Let me give you a quick uh, background without, of course, correcting the host, because that would violate the fundamental rules, but uh, Michael Krasny was born in Cleveland, so he is a fellow Buckeye like me. I'm from Cincinnati. Uh, He picked up his uh, Ph.D. in English literature at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And for 28 years, until last February, he was the daily host of Forum on the uh, number one rated station in the Bay Area, public radio station KQED. And before that, he uh, slogged it out in commercial radio. Uh, for, uh, I guess, about nine years at the uh, KGOAM, a legendary station here on the West Coast. And he has been a professor of English teaching at San Francisco State since 1970. I believe he uh, has emeritus status now. And I want to note that he is the author of three books, Off Mike, you get it, a memoir of talk radio and literary life, but don't call him Mike. Um, He also wrote Spiritual Envy, an agnostic's quest, and more recently, Let There Be Laughter, a treasury of great Jewish humor and what it all means. 
And I invited the professor to not only bring his uh, great sense of humor to the show today, but also his opinions, because I want to ask him a little bit about this. But working in public radio, uh, you don't share your opinions with the listeners. And so uh, I said in an email to Michael that I think I know what his opinions are, but I know that I don't really know. So uh, let's have a good time here and welcome Michael Krasny to the David Feldman Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, the opinions come across sometimes uh, subversively and under the radar and on the down low, so they're there. And it's uh, it's really good to be back with uh, David. I mean, uh, Peter had been seeing around through the years because we're both in the Bay Area, but uh, the Bay Area lost the treasure when David moved down south, and he was always um, stupefied that I remembered his wife's name was Teresa. And the only reason I remembered was I had a colleague who lived in San Bruno who had a daughter named Teresa, and David's wife was from San Bruno. So it was an easy monomic to remember his wife's name. Right. He was much appreciated. When and if I could there. remember her name, we'd still be married. <laughs> well, Teresa, I'm alluding to, changed her name, and she's now with a different name. I won't give it away, but she's right. an anti-vaxxer, and she's gone into a whole different avatar, so to speak, or incarnation right. in her life. Anyway, it's good to see you it's again. It's good to David. see you again. And you were at my wedding. Yes, I was. And it was a memorable wedding, and I was glad to be there. Um, but then you abandoned us, and I don't think I've heard from you since until now. Right. It's great to see you. I used to do your show on KGO all the time. Anyway, Peter, I'm going to sit back and listen, and then maybe we can convince the professor to, to join this insanity on a more regular basis. Okay, By the way, I'll every leave. book behind this man has been, he read, correct, My, Peter? Uh, well, uh, let's ask him. I, I would believe so because uh, I had to trim my book collection down, but I saved every book of, of individuals I interviewed over the years. And uh, Michael did it uh, longer and more frequently. Um, well, so what is the question? <laughs> oh, the book collection behind you. Have you read every one? David oh, uh, probably not every one, no. But um, I, I was a pretty omnivorous reader in my youth, you know, and that was why I pursued doctoral studies in literature. And literature was one of those fields that I could really bring a lot of interdisciplinary uh, reading in. And as a teacher, did the same. In fact, for years, I was involved in a science humanities convergence program. And I read a lot of books of authors that I had on as I'm sure Peter's aware, uh, particularly in the first years in public radio, I interviewed many, many authors. Uh, in fact, even counted heads with Studs Terkel and realized that I had interviewed more people than, than Studs Terkel, which wow. I guess requires some kind of status. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about uh, your work. And I'm interested in comparing uh, your time on KGO, commercial radio, with uh, the long run that you had at KQED. Because, uh, you know, for me, public radio is an important outlet, and you brought a high level of discourse. It was never beyond the reach of your audience, but you uh, uh, believed that you had intelligent listeners and you treated them that way. This was frowned upon in commercial radio. And uh, I'm wondering how you managed that in your initial years, uh, and then uh, if you felt in any way constrained during your, your long run at KQED. 
Well, when I was on KGO, uh, the word was out that I sounded too much like NPR. And when I went to NPR, they said I sounded too much like I was on commercial radio. Uh, I was able in some ways to straddle in both worlds and the worlds are completely alien to one another, I must say. Uh, it's not that public radio is all that clean and pure. I mean, they do a lot of underwriting and so they're not the pristine kind of station that many people identify them with. But for me as a, as a commercial radio, they used to call them communicaster. I still find that word makes me recoil a bit. Um, but the idea was, you know, to get people in sense. That's why after a fashion, it didn't quite feel like a fit for me in commercial radio to get people banging their dashboards. And plus it became much too right wing, much too influenced by Rush Limbaugh and too idealized with entertainment or what they call again, a word I hesitate to even use infotainment. Uh, when I moved into public radio, I became more of a journalist and less of an entertainer and less of someone who tried to get people uh, aroused, shall we say. And I don't mean that in any concupiscent or lustful way. Um, the idea was to get people worked up in commercial radio. And that was not for me after the fashion. I was more, as a genteel professor, I was academic, much more fit into the world of public radio. Well, I'll just say this that uh, I don't remember exactly, but sometime around 2005 or so, a headhunter approached me and invited me to pitch for a job. There was an opening on all things considered. Well, I was flattered by that. But when I went to found tape uh, to submit what we call an air check, uh, audio samples for uh, review by a prospective employer, I couldn't find anything that wasn't loaded with all my opinions. And so as a talk radio host, I always, uh, you know, expressed my bias. And I, I would interview people who didn't agree with me, but um, I always made clear what my point of view was. And so uh, I actually, in the end, declined to submit because I really didn't feel that uh, I could find anything worthy to uh, submit that wouldn't uh, cause red flags. And I also thought that if I actually sat in that chair, that I'd, I'd be unhappy, that I've, I'd have a very hard time not saying, oh, uh, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> so uh, tell me how you dealt with that. Well, and like I said, you know, there were ways of bringing in opinions uh, and, and doing so. One of the things I loved about being in public radio was uh, we made a kind of crusade almost of hearing from both sides, at least initially. Uh, as the years progressed, and particularly in recent years, during the Trump years, things became more woke and more woke-minded, I think, you know, to give a broad characterization. Uh, certainly after the murder of George Floyd and uh, after the killing of Breonna Taylor, uh, there was a great deal of different sense of what racial justice meant and what social justice meant, and even more zealotry and more of a desire to bring things to a head. Uh, but I always enjoyed hearing from both sides. I would put people on like Pat Buchanan or George Will or, you know, infamous conservatives and have a go at them. Um, and at first, when I started in public radio, I had people who were very angry about that and said, what are you putting these fascists on? This is a public radio station. You should be, you know, doing what we think you're doing. But I kind of trained my audience into thinking, you may not agree with these people, but don't you want to know what their opinions are? And don't you want to know how to, you know, essentially oppose them? So that was an attempt to 
kind of show both sides. For example, I would have on Wade Connerly talking African-American, who was a region at UC, talking against affirmative action. And then I would put on Henry Durer, who is uh, the head of Chinese uh, for affirmative action. And you would really have a balance there because we expected the way we produced our programs to really hear from both sides. And in those days, you know, we would put on people from the Hoover Institution, now run by Condoleezza Rice, who was much more conservative back then, and get branded as, why are you, you know, having these fascists on the air? There's a lot of anger. Um, So to be what I thought of as a consummate journalist, and use those words again advisedly, I thought it was important to really present both sides. It became harder during the Trump years, much harder. And during the Trump years, in fact, we were putting on a lot of people who, uh, a lot of members of the Lincoln Brigade, you know, who were anti-Trump, who had been Republicans. And I like to have them on because I like to ask them, you know, what about when you were so conservative before and how does this translate now? Uh, So opinions would seep in often to the discourse, even though we always try to, I always try to animate it to maintain a higher level of discourse and certainly hope that I did. Well, since you mentioned the, uh, the Lincoln group, Steve Schmidt is a former Republican uh, political consultant, very high-level guy, who uh, spearheaded that effort and was often uh, the face of it. And what always frustrated Forgive me, me, Peter, I think I misspoke. I think I said Lincoln Brigade, which is the, the Americans who fought against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> oh, I, I was thinking of the Lincoln Project. I think. That's, yeah, well, I think that's the correct name for it. I, I'm sorry. I just did an interview uh, on stage with Adam Hawkshill, who wrote a book about the Spanish Civil War. So forgive me for that mistake. It's uh, <laughs> it's understandable. Yeah. That's okay. But um, when I see Steve Schmidt, particularly on MSNBC, they never point out that he was one of the people who pressured John McCain to put Sarah Palin on the ticket with him in 2008. And to me, this was a a real um, uh, pivotal move that introduced these uh, caricatures to high-level, you know, potentially uh, high-level political office. And, you know, Sarah Palin has begat many spawn uh, that people can easily identify but it cheapened the qualifications for office. It was a token gesture, and uh, it created this trash mouth uh, figure who really, I think, emboldened Trump uh, to say almost anything uh, and have it tweeted out and reported on a daily basis. And nobody ever says, hey, Steve, what about Sarah Palin? You got any regrets? Well, it's not true that nobody ever did. I asked him that question. Uh, I find it in the archives. I said, you know, because uh, I like you indicated, he certainly was played a central role in the selection of Sarah Palin. Uh, you can recall, perhaps McCain wanted to run with Joe Lieberman, who Al Gore ran with, and the reason he did was because he felt this bond with Lieberman, and he felt that kind of like Lieberman was his bro. I mean, they were really very close, and. Uh, he was advised against it by Schmidt and others, and Schmidt actually expressed regret for that. He um, said, at least as I recall our conversation, that he didn't think that that was a very smart choice. He thought it may have indeed uh, managed to sink McCain, uh, or certainly start the sinking process. And, you know, there were other things that Steve Schmidt and others in that 
uh, Lincoln Group were and ought to be seen as culpable and answerable for. Um, and I tried to always go there. Uh, I did a number of interviews with Max Boot, and there were you know positions that he took that were extremely conservative. And then he became an anti-Trumpist. And I was always fascinated by uh, you know what how much answerable I'll use that word again they were for the mistakes they made. I'm not just saying this from a liberal standpoint, because I've gone after liberals in my day, too, or progressives or people on the left. I like to see myself when I was doing public radio as an equal opportunity, how shall we say, inquisitor, uh, especially when it came to politics. Michael, earlier you mentioned Rush Limbaugh and the rightward tilt of commercial talk radio. Uh I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, your sense, because I've articulated that uh, he really, uh, because Roger Ailes was one of his early consultants, uh, and that, you know, led to Fox News, and the combination of Limbaugh and Fox uh, in many ways enabled the rise of Donald Trump. And so I see this departure from uh, you know, what what you and I were doing in the 1980s, which was opinion radio, but it was based on a common set of facts. And since that time, we've really gotten away from it. We have siloed uh, acquisition of information that passes as fact. Um, well, we but we have what Kelly and Conway called alternate facts. Yes. Yeah, yes. No. And, and so uh, as we see this arc of development in, you know, public rhetoric and, and you know, the national debate such as it is, um, where do we go in the future? How do we try to recover some sense of balance and, and fairness and getting people of disparate points of view to listen to each other. They talk at each other now at best, but uh, we've lost the art of listening. Well, I think you raise a very crucial point, Peter, and one that I don't have any glib or facile answers for because uh, I lament the trajectory downward. And I wonder where listening will come back and when and if it'll come back. I also fret about and get grim sometimes, frankly, about the fact that there's so much polarization now. I mean, you know, there are, to use your word, there are silos, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC, they have their own silos and they have their own cocoons and they pretty much exist in their uh, uh, spaces. And they have followings that are pretty much in conformity with each other. And so that sense of what you were talking about, you know, I'm getting very nostalgic about the 80s, about having opinions that went out and that were wider in the discourse and the net was wider uh, and things were not so much fractured as they are now and not so much, frankly, uh, full of a kind of spewing and tabloidism that uh, has really affected just quality discourse. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like, you know, one of these who laments where we are now, but I don't, I don't feel particularly optimistic or sanguine about where we're going or any trajectory because we're on a trajectory that's been kind of on the down uh, ever since we were in radio back in the eighties. Uh, it's not to say we were in a halcyon period or the things were ideal back then, but they were a hell of a lot better than now in terms of differing points of view, in terms of civility, in terms of just a recognition that there are multiple points of view. That's what I liked about public broadcasting. 
that that recognition was built into it. I'm not answering your question with any solution because, uh, like I said, I, I, I always think about the great German playwright Bertolt Brecht who said, um, the man who laughs has not yet been told the terrible news. And to some extent, news has been for years, um, if, it le- if it bleeds, it leads, and go with sensational news and go with news that will get the click bites. Social media has made things so much worse than we ever imagined, you know, in the sense of just drawing these kind of polarized uh, areas that we now live in. Uh, it's like polarized little worlds unto themselves. And if I sound like I'm haranguing here, I'm sorry, but, you know, it just strikes me often that um, getting back to just reasonable kind of discourse where people listen to each other, I mean, look what's been happening with the anti-vax movement. Um, you have people on both sides, on the left and the right, who are anti-vaxxers, you know, but they're not listening to the people who are saying, you need a vaccine. Don't you remember when you were kids and you went to the public school and got vaccinated? Why do you think uh, that Anthony Fauci is such a villain? Why do you make Deborah Burks into such a villain? That doesn't really necessarily square or equate with the attitudes that ought to be built into the value of perhaps really warding off against this terrible plague that we have upon us. These are people who are talking about constitutional rights. They don't talk about it, for example, when they talk about uh, a seatbelt. They don't talk about it when they talk about smoking in different restaurants uh, with secondhand smoke or wearing a helmet. Uh, those kinds of things don't apply. But somehow constitutional rights applies to getting a vaccine, which will make you safer, I think, arguably and scientifically and make other people safer. Doesn't square. Well, to pick up on that thread, uh, you know, I feel that Donald Trump, Trump uh, hopelessly politicized the whole response to the uh, epidemic, the pandemic, and that it pushed people into corners. And you mentioned Fauci and, and Deborah Burks. <clears throat> they were there uh, standing by and mostly silent when Trump made some of his most ridiculous comments. And the, the second part of this is what I would consider to be media malpractice. When Trump elbowed Pence out of the way, uh, who was nominally the head of the uh, COVID task force, and insisted on hosting those daily briefings that would go on for hours, uh, the the cable channels covered every minute of of those uh, sessions. And it did leave them saying, well, here is a president who is lying, who is spinning, who is trying to keep his his numbers in terms of infections, hospitalizations, and fatalities uh, at a minimum. And here are these so-called experts who are, you know, always on the stage with him and generally refusing to contradict him. Yeah, he had so many people in public office terrified of losing their jobs. It's almost that simple. Uh, Because to go against him meant that. It also meant that he could be harassed and, you know, had to undergo all kinds of uh, well, terrible experiences, to put it mildly. The other thing about Trump, though, is that I think, and we know this even more recently with congressional uh, papers that have been released, um, and we know it from uh, Bob Woodward's book and so forth, he wanted to keep reassuring people, that was the excuse he made, that there really was nothing to worry about. In fact, I mentioned Kellyanne Conway, and she was another one. I mean, there were a whole legion of them, his troops, for example, who said, no, this is going to go away, and this is just like the flu, and it's nothing to worry about, and so forth. 
And there's a great deal of culpability there. There's a great deal of complicity there. And, and certainly uh, it, it's something that, once again, has simply, I mean, some people are getting very optimistic now about the future of uh, uh, what people have to answer for in the Trump administration because of the fact that uh, Steve Bannon has been led away in handcuffs. Um, but, you know, what has been done about Donald Trump? Are we going to see anything come out of Georgia with Raffin, with, with Raffensburgers, the threat against him? Are we going to see anything come out of, uh, for that matter, the kind of uh, work that's being done in New York, uh, in the in the uh, federal courts, digging around with his tax returns and so forth? I don't know. Um, I mean, there's certainly reasons to hold, hold him accountable, but he's got a cult following, and he is the Republican Party now. And there's... You talk about rhinos and talk about those people who were in opposition to him, the few that voted for the impeachment and so forth. But basically, he owns that party. At one time, they wanted desperately to try to bring in, you may remember this and almost be nostalgic about it, bring in what they called the Hispanic voters. And uh, Bush Jr. was talking about, Bush too, was talking about, you know, building up better relations, not only with Central America, but taking in. Uh, migrants and immigrants and so forth. Uh, he, he was like the Texas boy, he sounded, who had sympathies. But then they found Trump, and Trump could tap into, with Bannon and others, uh, a very alienated working class, uh, white, blue-collar people who felt anger about Obama and felt anger about racial issues and affirmative action and all the rest of that. And, um, you know, there was a kind of populist, I hate to use that word, but that's the word they use, genius in that, on the part of Trump and his, uh, and his stalwarts. But we're paying a lot of the price now and a lot of the consequences. I have argued that Trump uh, broke the Constitution by stonewalling both impeachment proceedings and that he was enabled and suborned by the Republican majorities, uh, particularly, well, the majority in the Senate at the time. And uh, I don't think that people in general and commentators in particular have, have really uh, made that clear. But we're now at a point where Trump operates like a mafia don. He has tremendous uh, enforcer powers over the Republican caucus. And we see now what the 13 Republicans who voted for the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, well, it was okay for members of the Senate on the Republican side to vote for that. But Trump has now deemed that anybody who voted for this package in the House uh, that was signed today by President Biden is a traitor to the Trump cause. And it's not only that he suborned the Constitution, I mean, on that level that you're talking about, but I've come to the conclusion quite a while ago that I don't think Donald Trump had any real respect for the Constitution because he didn't know what it was. I mean, he was so bloody ignorant about not only constitutional law, but history. I mean, this is someone who was talking about airports during the Revolutionary War. You know, <laughs> the only things he cared about really when you come right down to were his own narcissistic uh, pleasures as he took them uh, or his paranoia as he expressed them uh, and, uh, and making a great deal of money and certainly being petty and vindictive in so many multiple numbers of ways. So, Michael, uh, I want to bring David back into this, and I want to focus on you a little bit because uh, I went to Wikipedia and looked up Michael J. Krasny, and you admitted to somebody at some point that you had a bad boy reputation while you were growing up in Cleveland Heights. Uh, Can you uh, expound on that, please? 
Well, it's simply um, factual. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, um, I mean, I was always uh, someone who aspired to be learned and wanting to read a great deal. And I was, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood where uh, my love of poetry was something I couldn't express because most of the guys I knew and on my block at least were spending a lot of time under the hoods of cars or they were hoods themselves. Uh, and I ran with the wild guys, you know, as Billy Joel used to say, and I was in a club, believe it or not called PDG, which stood for pretty damn good. And it was a, it was a lot of reprobates, uh, but they were lively and they were vital and they were fun. And some of them were actually outstanding athletes. They, um, they led a panty raid, if you could believe it, this kind of dates me, of course. Um, some of them got in real trouble for hubcap stealing and, uh, believe it or not, uh, even in that era, uh, one went to jail for cocaine selling. I mean, there were, there were a lot of, um, they weren't exactly a gang, but they were, um, they were hellraisers. Uh, and, uh, there was a great Yiddish word, in fact, that kind of epitomized, they were pasquinyaks, which I love the Ottomanic poke sound of that word, you know, they were, they were bad boys. Uh, and. I was always kind of the outlier because I was, I like to think of somewhat more sensitive and um, at least in my uh, contemplative moments, more uh, serious minded young man, but uh, they were my pals and uh, you know, I was one of them. I don't know that we ever did anything evil or anything really bad, you know, but um, at the same time took a certain pleasure and pride in being bad boys. Um, I recently uh, saw someone I went to high school with who was a cheerleader at our high school in Cleveland Heights, which is an odd sort of high school because it had a lot of blue collar kids from Cleveland Heights and then it had across the border of University Heights, more semi-affluent from families of judges and lawyers and doctors and so forth. A lot of Jews, but also a lot of Italians. It was a great mix actually in many ways. And um, this former cheerleader said to me, those friends of yours in high school, that club you were at, those guys, a lot of them were sweet and handsome and good looking, but there were some pretty scary guys. <laughs> and, you know, I sort of reflected back on that. She was right. I mean, scary for the time. Mm -hmm. Did any of them do time? Well, there was yes. a Coke dealer, right? Pardon? You, the Coke dealer. Yeah, I was kind of a Coke dealer. I mean, especially. No, no, Coke dealer. The Coke. Oh, oh, I said there was a Coke dealer. I was a Coke dealer, too, in the sense right. that. The older guys were the ones I looked up to, and some of them were really wild. But uh, then we had my own contemporaries who were, there was a different kind of uh, hierarchy there. Tell me what the teaching, you're an English professor. What did you specialize in teaching over the years? Well, I came to San Francisco State in 1970, and this is something I'm writing about now because race is so much on people's minds. Um, I came after having completed um, everything but my dissertation at Wisconsin, which I completed the first year there, and saw myself as a teacher of American literature. However, I did a dissertation. Pardon? Just noise. Go ahead. I, I did a dissertation on a writer named Gene Toomer, who most people probably have not still heard about. He wrote a book called Cain, which was published in 1923 and sold all 500 copies. But I, I'm not trying to present myself as any kind of visionary, but I thought the book was remarkable in many ways. And Toomer was someone who lived on both sides of the color line. He was recognized during the Harlem Renaissance as one of his chief and major writers. 
uh, Langston Hughes praised him, Arno Bontom praised him. I mean, all those figures of the Harlem Renaissance thought he was wonderful, but he still didn't get a wide audience, in part because people didn't consider, quote, Negro literature to be important enough. It was too parochial. You know, there were those who came later who changed all that, Baldwin, Ellison, Toni Morrison. But I came to San Francisco State, and they said to me, will you teach black literature? And I said, you know, I'm a white boy. Uh, I don't know if I should be teaching black literature. You just had a strike the year before that was for more black literature and black education and uh, black studies courses. And uh, they said, well, we don't have anybody black to teach those courses. We'd like to offer, especially after the strike. I'll tell you the quick version of this. Um, I, I came into uh, the classroom. I agreed to teach black literature, African-American literature, as we called it then. And I saw some, I was, there were a lot of black students. I saw someone in the front row glaring at me. I mean, literally giving me evil eye. And uh, he had dreadlocks. I don't mind telling you, I was somewhat frightened. I didn't know what I was dealing with. The strike had been militant. And I thought for one time in my life, pretty well on my feet. I said, look, I said, I don't pretend to understand the black experience from the inside. I'm an outsider, I'm a scholar, and I'm a literary critic, but there are things I can teach you. And I started, I'm basically kind of dropping names of non-canonical black writers. So you don't know about Jupiter Hammond, you don't know about Phyllis Wheatley, you don't know about Charles Chestnut. I can teach you things you don't know about. And suddenly I noticed this guy who had been with his dreadlocks, who'd been looking at me with enmity, his body language was changing and he was becoming more relaxed. And so help me, some friends who have read some of my writing say this should be the title, but I don't know that it's really a title. He turned around and said audibly, this white boy knows his shit. Just like that. <laughs> and so I had the imprimatur of someone who had been a strike leader, and we right. became actually good friends. Um, and I moved away from, I, because I thought, I taught a course after that with Robert Crispin called Race and Literature, which was, uh, I knew Christmas because I published in The Black Scholar, which he was the editor of, which is right out of Sausalito. Um, but I kept feeling we should be hiring black teachers to teach black literature in the English department. And finally, we got around to that much later than we did. But I was essentially a teacher of American literature, both 19th and 20th century. I was involved in a humanities science convergence program we called NEXA, which was funded by NEH and the Mellon Foundation. So there were a lot of hats that I wore as a professor. I even taught literary theory. I taught a course in the NEXA program in Freud and literature Are, with a psychologist. You know, from my perspective, everybody seems to be obsessed with the the, the news cycle and the, the the raging against whomever. Do people still read novels? Is this? Do kids still go and become? English majors when college is so expensive and it's become more of a vocational pursuit than it is one of liberal arts? Are there still kids who say, you know what, I'm going to waste four years learning something that won't be anything that I can't apply, or at least I've been conditioned to believe I can't apply towards work? Again, a very good question. Um you guys are good in the interlocutor roles. Uh, I think 
it's mixed. Um, there are still students who love to read, and some of them come from more privileged backgrounds, and they right. can afford to study what they want to study without thinking, you know, I have to learn coding or science right. or something that's going to get me a job. Of course, their parents play a preeminent role, in too, when they're paying the kind of costs. Well, that's what things. liberal arts means. It was for the people who were enslaved, right, in ancient Rome. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And there's a wonderful book about uh, the defense of liberal arts education by Michael Roth, who is president of Wellesley College and was head of the Art Institute in San Francisco. I think really to answer your question sufficiently, though, David, um, I found that I was in, in recent years teaching more short fiction because I realized that a lot of students didn't have, they were reading tweets and they were reading, you know, Facebook uh, postings and so forth. They didn't really have, uh, well, J.D. Salinger put it best, you know, the difference between the short story and the uh, and the novel is the difference between a dash and a, and a long distance run. Uh, and they didn't necessarily have the breath even to read or peruse, if you prefer, the novel and the long distance, do the long distance run. Um, but there are still students, I've taught at Stanford as well, and you know, it's more privileged than the, one of the things that drew me to San Francisco State was a working class college. Um, Stanford kids have more bounty behind them, so they're able to indulge themselves with literary studies to a greater degree. But things changed uh, enormously just in the last couple of decades, as you've intimated. And is the novel right now relevant? Are there no, are there novels that will give you more insight than any nonfiction book? Absolutely. And I'll plug some because I just did an event that I do every year with the National Kidney Foundation. It's called a Literary Luncheon. I interviewed Elizabeth Stroud, who won a Pulitzer, wonderful novelist. I interviewed Walter Mosley, whom some of you may remember, Devil with a, in a Blue Dress. Right. It was based on his earlier novel, um, but now he's writing. He's got a workout called Awkward Black Man. Did an interview uh, for them with Amos, uh, excuse me, with Amor Tolles, who uh, wrote a wonderful book called Gentleman in Moscow. It's a tome of a book, but it's a terrific novel. And the one, number one bestseller. We, is, our is, guest was just bringing a... Uh, uh, Colleen was just bringing this up. It takes place right after the Russian Revolution. That's right. Yeah. We, we, uh, our first no, guest brought then, that book uh, up. But he's been the more recent novel called The Lincoln Highway, which I, I just was talking to him about uh, in this Kidney Foundation luncheon and, and that I did. So, yeah, their novel is well worth reading. And, you know, I did an interview just, on, I'm still doing a lot of interviews. I did an interview on Saturday with Adam Hochschild, the name, again, some of you know. Leopold, the ghost, uh, Leopold's Ghost, right? Yeah, he wrote King Leopold's Ghost, exactly. But he said there's so much more to get out of fiction. He wants to come back in another life as a fiction writer. There's so much more you can do. I mean, he's a great journalist and a great historian. But he says he has to create the real characters as opposed to saying the things that need to be said through fictive or imaginary characters. Right. Will you come back? <laughs> uh, well... Let me put it this way, time permitting, I certainly enjoyed this and enjoy talking to you and, yeah. and Peter. We've been too long estranged, David, so yes. we'll be back and we'll see what yeah. we can do. It's really great to see. It really is. Thank you, Peter, for bringing Professor Krasny on. It's been... And, and David, just if I may, as a postscript, uh, you introduced me as a member of the Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame, and I neglected to mention that Michael is uh, a member of longstanding and much more deserving than I. Humble and not necessarily true, but nice of you to say. Um, is there a way uh, for this guest to get uh, a copy of this particular 
Yeah, we, we were supposed to be on YouTube tonight, but for some reason we weren't live streaming. I'm having technical problems. That was one of my last questions. We started doing this show on Zoom about a year and a about two years ago. Yeah, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And then we started live streaming it on YouTube. And all of a sudden, once we went on YouTube, and we have a small audience, but it was live. The podcast suddenly was live, alive. I've been doing this podcast for 12 years, but it was always pre-taped. Once we started doing it on Zoom and YouTube, it the energy coursing through my veins was phenomenal. And tonight was the first night we couldn't get it up onto YouTube. Radio is live. And My radio is always live, yeah. Radio is live, but it's dead. They killed radio. The, the greed, the corporations, Clear Channel, they bought it up almost as though they knew how dangerous, how dangerous radio could be because it's preliterate. It, it's, it goes right into your head. And, you know, Rwanda, the... the the genocide in Rwanda was performed because of radio. They were able to rev up, right. uh, rev them up and tell them where to go. Is radio ever going to come back to its former glory? And was there ever a glory to remember? Yes, obviously there was. Oh, there were glory days. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think of KGO as having right. glory days. Many of my years in the tenure I had at KQED was glory days. And I don't think it's all over yet. You know, I left an audience when I retired of uh, about three quarters of a million listeners because we were on Sirius also and uh, about 25,000 to 30,000 podcast listeners. Um, and the digital world is growing in ways that had never been, I mean, there are jokes now almost about it. And there are apartments you can rent in uh, Manhattan, I'm told, that are advertised they have a podcast um, studio that include, is included in, right. everybody seems to have a podcast now. Right, uh, right. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm thinking about, do I want to do a podcast? Do I want to, uh, sort of mulling that over in, in my retirement. But, uh, it, but it isn't live, it's not live. Uh, it's not, no, I've been, actually, I did a couple of interviews that will be probably turned into a podcast and they were live, but the podcast itself probably wouldn't be live. No. Right. But remember, for example, Terry Gross, who is kind of a real legendary figure in public radio, was never live. She was always right. taped edited, and so forth. Um, and I think radio has a future, but unfortunately, I, a lot of future because it's in the dashboards now. You can listen to it online. There are ways that people can access radio. Uh, and it's the theater of the mind, as we used to say. Right. My show I mean, is the intimate medium. My it's, show's it's the really community my show's the uh, the community dinner theater of the mind. It's a little low. So, I still haven't <laughs> got good, it. David. Let me just also give a plug for you because when I realized I was gonna be on with you, um, I wrote to Peter. Probably know you. Probably both remember the name Bill Mann. I still am community. Oh yeah, Bill Mann. yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's a TV radio critic for the Oakland Trib and for the Center Rose right. paper. And and I said to Bill, I'm going to be on with Peter B. and David Feldman. And he suddenly got very excited and said, "Feldo!" And um, I 
I thought, he said, have you seen some of Feldo's routines? And I thought, I, I really owe it to David to go and, uh, and see some of the stuff that he's done. Because uh, I remember your dark humor quite well. Yeah. Uh, and I saw the uh, fairly recent appearance by you on Conan, uh, where you came out all dressed up. And uh, also, you get mentioned in a book I did on honor, which has not yet come into print, but will. And the reason I mention you in, in that is I'm dealing with the whole idea of recognition and respect and how they differ from honor. This goes back to my Hebraic roots, uh, COVID and COVID, when you, know, you get the sense of honor or recognition and respect, they're almost all blended together. And I remember you telling me that you never felt more alive so when you went up and got an Emmy Award and you were standing there, I think it was for writing for Maher, for Bill Maher. Yeah. Is that, did I say that? You said <laughs> you felt this extraordinary sense of elevation of spirit. Or I can't, I can't, I'm only paraphrasing, but you felt more alive than you'd ever felt because you were getting this recognition. You were going up on stage and getting an Emmy Award. And a lot of people feel that way when they get that kind of honor. But you know, but I, this is what I remember. I remember, uh, like, it was transplendent, transcendent. And then by the time I had the award till when I went backstage for the photographs, my old friend, disappointment, bubbled up, just started bubbling. It, it was, it was, I think that's what I probably told you is that it lasted until I actually touched the Emmy. And then it was like, Ah, I'm sharing it with other comedy writers. This isn't really my show. You know, this is probably the I mean, best. You were off stage when you started having those feelings. Is that right? I got the award. I got it. They give me it. And then I stand. And then I realize I'm sharing this with five other guys. It's not that special. And then by the time I'm backstage trying the caviar, I'm depressed and I want to go home. And I remember <laughs> my father said to me, if this is... If this is what you're like on one of the greatest nights of your life, I'd hate to see you when I die. <laughs> when I... You never told me the other chapter of that. You told me about how you felt when you got the Emmy. Now I've got the Daniel Moore, as we say in the literary studies. Right. The whole so I, it was just a complete letdown and depression. And uh, huh. what, what is it, COVID? Well, there's a if you read the joys of Yiddish by Leo Rustin, K O V E D. It's too close to COVID. Yeah, to COVID nineteen. Yeah, it's called COVID. Uh, comes from the the Hebrew kavod, like people say, ha kavod, meaning honor to you, and uh, it's in the Bible. And uh, well, it means essentially the honor. It comes. The etymology of the word is fascinating. It goes back to armaments and weight, but it has a tie to. Um, what we interpret as honor. And I started really grappling with what is honor? You know, what do we mean by it? Because I was originally going to be a Shakespearean scholar. And there's so much of Shakespeare. Honor is ubiquitous. But in addition to that, I found myself grappling with, you know, horrible honor killings. And Ku Klux Klan has a code of honor. And the mafia has a code of honor. Right. Not snitching is honor, you know, and so forth. Right. Kind of um, got me in uh, a big canvas. I'm going to be bothering you to come back. <laughs> thank uh, you. Thank you. It's flattery. Um, I also read your uh, 
I, I told some people I know who are friends with the Gettys, and that's not to uh, to sound socially. I have they're my only friends who are in that status. About your spaghetti joke, and they thought that was fun. <laughs> that was that was the nicest thing I had to say about the the wedding. <laughs> Thank you. Let's I, we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, Jewish humor. I would love that. Invite me back, time permitting. We'll okay. See. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to see you in the flesh sometime, too. That, too. Have you ever come up to the Bay Area? I haven't. I'm living in New York now. Yeah, I know. So, um, well, I have a granddaughter in New York. Do you visit? So, uh, as much as I can. It's my only grandchild. Wow. Well, I'll buy dinner. <laughs> as long as you don't eat much. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? Are you in Manhattan? Uh, I'm in, yes. Are you in Brooklyn? I'm, I'm in Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see you. So it would we'll be great. It would be perfect. Yeah. Thank you, Professor. And thank you, Peter B. Collins. Thank, thank you. you My pleasure. Let's now go to Denton, Texas, where Professor Mike Steinell is standing by. Hello, Professor. How are you? Hello, David. I'm very honored to have my my uh, special award that you gave me a while back. Oh, yes. The Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, it feels like a lifetime with you. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you and we charge you for the lifetime achievement award. I yeah, believe. I had to buy it myself. It's just like you had to. <laughs> did you have to buy your Emmy? Uh, no, no, they don't. Really, some people do. I, I've had friends who've got Grammys. They've been involved with the Grammy project, and they can. One guy's the engineer that I use, and he it's proudly there on his uh, console, <clears throat> and I said. You, did you have to buy them? They said, yeah, you have to buy them. Well, th why don't you we give me a medallion? <laughs> That's the backstage pass. The Lifetime Achievement. Why don't how's we my start? How's my volume? Is my volume OK? I've been jacking with things. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little. I, I don't want It's fine. It's just good to what's, see. What's you. wrong with it? Tell me. Uh, there's a, little a bit, hot and a little crisp. Little, little hot. OK. Little hot. That was his. There you go. That's what the, what the girls That's called my final me in high comment. school. Yeah, Thank you, Peter. Peter. That's great. Thank uh, you. Well, that last segment was something else. Jeez, man, I feel like that's a hard act to follow. No, you're a genius. Are you kidding? I don't know. You're, I don't you're know kidding. about that. It's good to see check you. Out, you you've check been, out my hat. Is that Calvin Klein? Is that Kay? No. Kinky Friedman. This oh, Kinky his, Friedman. This is his Kinky for Governor hat. I, I voted for him. He, he followed George W. Bush, you know. And uh, I mean, he would have if he'd won. You know what his motto was? No. How hard could it be? <laughs> <laughs> and and now, uh, Beto. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I put this on for the in in honor of uh, Beto. Is it Beto or Beto? Beto. 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 You say Beto, yeah. and I say Beto. Yeah. Well, the the job of Texas governor means nothing. So. Beto would be perfect for that job because he means nothing. Well, it has enough power to inflict some some harm, you know, on people like Abbott has done. Isn't it Patrick, though? Dan Pearson, Dan Patrick. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy. There, yeah. there, there's a there's a trifecta of three, you know, like uh, the, the attorney general, the Paxton? Uh, lieutenant governor. Yeah, and and Abbott. I mean, it's it's just horrible, you know. But let's talk about something. But pa Paxton is supposed to be put in jail, right? For like 
Yeah, he's under indictment while he's holding office. I mean, that, right. I don't know how that works out. Hey, um, did you get? I sent it. I sent pig I for sent, I, pig I have love. to download it. Yes, use the, do right, the now. There are two. One I sent you. There are two. Do this. Do the most recent one because I didn't put the fade. Okay. One, it says pig for love with fade, and that's not a haircut. Right, but I'm getting two. I have one that's two minutes and thirty six seconds, and one that's a minute thirty three. Uh, what's which one was attached to the most recent email? I have two attached to the most recent email. No shit. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, How long is it? What? Play play the play the shorter one. It's probably got the fade. But it's a minute thirty three. I want to get my yeah. money's worth. I see one for two thirty six. <laughs> That's a minute more. I don't want to be cheated. Well, if you want to, I'll tell you to start to fade it. Play the play the one. Play the shorter one. It's not a long song. I but be, before I thought you. Know, yeah, I, we need to I vamp. Some, I, okay, you know, I thought about um, actually not having the song finished, and we could workshop it the way you do, like a show. Mm -hmm. and, and so. I decided, first of all, it was pretty funny. I'm up here recording it. We have a house that's got two floors, but it's an open loft. So uh, my mother-in-law, my 99-year-old mother-in-law is downstairs. She's watching NCIS. <laughs> and, and she was... And, and she should sure watch this wondering. show. There are more corpses <laughs> on this show than there are. She well, you know, I'm up here. I'm up. You'll hear there's background vocals. He's a pig for love. <laughs> and I'm going like, well, she's down there listening to this. I'm just going like, what in the world is that boy doing up there? Well, singing pig for love. I'm excited about this because I always thought uh, we're vamping here. I'm yeah. trying to find it. I always thought pig for love would be one of the worst songs imaginable. <laughs> I well, I dressed it. I dressed it up a little bit with big words. Like oh, okay. I used, I used some fancy words like, uh, "Let me see." Um, I'm a. Uh, there's um, my uh, appetites are rapacious. I didn't even know what rapacious meant. Mm. It's pig-like, right? Yeah, yeah, insatiable. Yeah. Insatiable. But no, that's no, not I fair. Think to... it's, well, it's pig-like. Is it? Is it okay? I Rap think. But it has to do with pig. It has to do with like overeating like a pig right. also i used i use porcine or porcine what, what's how would you say it p-o-r-c-i-n-e uh porcine porcine I, I think it's porcine i think okay i think that's what i did i did um let me see it starts out uh oh wait a second um, i got new feldman theme yeah i th listen i have a bone to pick I did that theme two weeks ago for you, and I've been listening to every show. Yes, and that was that was to rotate with the other theme, which you keep playing a lot. I know, and this would be a, like a, a change of pace, and you could just pop it into that video. You could just you can go yes. into your iMovie, and you can take that my MP3 and pop it in there. You're right. Well, well but anyway, we, yes, I you're will. Busy, you're a busy man. I know that. I, you know, man. I, I creature. I'm a creature of habit. So, and we had a, you know, we're not streaming on YouTube today. Yeah, you told me, I heard on the last segment you couldn't get it up, but we it didn't get, surprise excuse me. Excuse me? <laughs> I heard on the last <laughs> segment you said you couldn't get it up tonight. <laughs> but that didn't surprise it me. It didn't surprise you. Hmm. <laughs> nah, that's what, the, that's what the word on the street is. 
Well, sheep lie. <laughs> you know that joke? Oh, there's a, I love that. I love the one about the, the last line is, you pick the ugliest one. <laughs> <laughs> so how are things in, in Texas? Or are, are you in Kansas? I'm in Texas. You're it's, in Texas. It'll be a, it'll be a while. I turned off all the stuff in in Kansas. It'll be a while. We'll wait till it warms up in the spring, and we'll go up there and enjoy that that place. But you're not going to go there oh. for the for the winter. No, 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 no. Why would I go? To, why would I leave Texas? Texas is beautiful in December. It's like it's perfect. It's beautiful today. Blue sky, sixty eight degrees. You know, amazing. Hey. Big news, my grandson is in town until the 28th wow. of November. Wow. So we get to babysit him tomorrow. When wow. His mom's going to Ikea. And so uh, we, we're, we're kind of on pins and needles because we're in charge. And we, <laughs> he's so much fun. We, well, he we, tires us out. He, oh, man. We should he's do exhausting. a competition. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn has a grandson. He's got a bunch of them. He's yeah. got three grandchildren. Yeah. Harvard, Professor K has a grandson. And you, you keep bringing this up. This is a horrible idea. We should have like a, have. <laughs> we should have like a competition to f who's who's the favorite grandson. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, it would be a it would be a toss up. They're all beautiful. How many do you have? Just one, yeah. just one, and you still love so him. So far, and you still love him. Of course, okay. of course. All right, just checking. he calls me, he calls me Bop Pop. Oh, Bop Pop. How old is he? Uh, he's two. Mm. He's got names for everything. We don't know. <laughs> he's got made up names. He's got his own language. That's for sure. It's fascinating to see him. You know, uh, process everything and right. You know, and, and he's with you for how many days? Well, he's in town. We got to share him. He's got three grandmas in town here. Wow! And he's got my wife and my ex-wife, and and then uh, my son-in-law's mother, and just one grandpa though. So you know, um, so that's kind of interesting. Hmm. But uh, all right, hey, well, you, know the, you want to play the song? Let's play "Pig for, Pig Love? for Love." This is okay. uh, this was a song I requested from the professor. He takes not only he takes requests to write. A song. This is. This is. I had to shut you up. I finally said, "I'm just going to shut him up and do this thing." Thank you. Okay. This but is. I dressed it up with some fancy language. You'll have to oh, check good. it out. All right. This is new music from Professor oh, Mike Steinell. Pig. <laughs> pig for love. <laughs> I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and a push comes to shove, I'm second to none. 
Professor Mike Steinal is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator. He taught at North Texas Jazz Studies from, I'm sorry, he was a member of the University of North Texas. That was just amazing. I'm like, everything's blurry. <laughs> My head is spinning. Uh, he, he taught jazz studies from 1987 to 2019 over at the University of North Texas. He is the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, and Building a jazz vocabulary. I think he has a new book coming out called Running the Changes. And go listen to Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckerd. It's on Origin Records. For more information, go to MikeSteinel.com. Wow, that is, that is amazing. That is amazing. Now, I know that Rodrigo is going to give me trouble for using for not using women's voices on those high parts. Right. Because he's because he's he's I think he's sensitive to that. that oh, he's pissed used, off that uh, Nicole Kidman is going to be playing Lucille Ball and not Deborah Messing because he feels a a, a ginger should be playing a ginger. <laughs> he's very right. Rodrigo. <laughs> Hey, we haven't talked about something very important. Maybe someone brought it up. Did you see, you know what the cover story of Time was this week? No. Barbie. Claus? And it <laughs> The Butcher of Leon? He finally made the cover of Time. <laughs> I read about it in uh, in in my barons. I get barons and I you know like a dream I have some money and I'm Oh, like, barons. That's that Weekly magazine for women with polluted wombs. <laughs> That's a good one, too. No, it Keep isn't. Going. That's terrible. Hostile. <laughs> the joke counts good. Hostile wombs. Hostile wombs. It's, 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 it's quantity, not quality that we're <laughs> after. Right. But they, they have revamped Barbie. And I've, I've 
seen three different accounts. There are, according to what you read, there might be as many as nine body types. In their, in their website, by the way, did you ever, like, when you were young, like, I mean, Barbies were always kind of interesting to me. I didn't play with them, but I would check them out. <laughs> well, there's a, there's, a, there's a phenomenon of men who bite the heads off of Barbies and swallow them. Google it. That, that is horrible. Yeah. You know, the, the actual doll was, was uh, designed. This Kate lady went to Germany, and there was this thing called the Lily doll. And Lily was a cartoon character in the newspaper, and she was kind of sexualized, and uh, the, all the jokes had innuendo, and, and uh, she was different places that called her a prostitute or a seductress or a, there was another word, but she looks just like Barbie, and, you know, the, she's busty and thin. And, uh, and not real. The, it's not like a... Not real, yeah, right, right, right. But this lady came back and she made Barbie and her Mattel almost laughed her out of the room, you know, like nobody's going to buy a, a, a doll with boobs. <laughs> it turns out there, there are like something like how many million people? Well, they say uh, two out of every three girls have played with a Barbie at some point, have right. owned and played with the Barbie. Right. And they've billions, billions, billions. But now they've got like the the uh, nine one this article said nine body types but the one that on their website i checked it out um i mean did you ever look at a barbie and get a little tickle about you know like even before you kind of knew what was going on no well yeah okay yeah because uh, they're sexualized well they yeah i mean they they're like they look exactly like the blow-up dolls i always wanted to be with they're, they're plastic <laughs> They're fake. And then, wow, I can't wait to get a life-size plastic doll to call my own. Yes. But anyway, yes. Um, there's petite, tall, and uh, curvy. And they, they had to research these names, like, in all the different cultures to make sure they could come up with a name. And there was one story. Well, you said there are nine body types. Well, one story says nine. One story says eight. And then on their website, they show three on the Mattel website. And um, they, there was an account of these little girls playing with these new Barbies, and they were watching what their comments were. And it was really interesting. Oh, this one's, this one's, uh, they, they, were, they were really reluctant to say the word fat. The, the doll is not fat. The doll is. But, but it, the, the curvy one is not, not curvy like uh, Who's that gal? That gal on? Um, I'm getting back. Here, my, myself coming back. Um, that gal on Mad Men. Uh, oh right, Chris, Christine. They're not curvy like that, you know. There, it's an interesting. Whoever came up with? Oh yeah, this is a curvy doll. Why are we talking about this? But anyway, <laughs> it's getting, it was just getting interesting. <laughs> thirty-five hair colors. Right. No, thirty-five skin tones. Good. 90 hair colors. Uh, they have a wheelchair Barbie and they have a Barbie with a prosthetic leg. So a little something for everybody. That's great. It well, is great. it is because there are generations of girls who played with dolls that didn't look like them. And that has to have that's horrible that you it, you don't you feel different. I think it's great that. There's a wheelchair Barbie and one with a prosthetic. And Lee says, 
Machine gun Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was even this group of uh, ba the Barbie Liberation Army, mm -hmm. and and they when they came out with um, a voice uh, where the Barbie would talk, these ladies would go steal the Barbies and replace <laughs> place. They'd open them up and they replace the recorded messages. Like one of them was for the diet. Oh, that that Barbie came with a diet book and you open it up and it said don't eat <laughs> and but anyway these ladies put gi joe uh voice boxes in the barbies and then took them back to the store and put them in place right so i um, wasn't allowed to get i i had to borrow my sister's ken doll to play with my friends who had a gi joe doll my mother you weren't you weren't allowed a G.I. Joe doll? I was not allowed a, a, a G.I. Joe doll. That's, that's very sad. And I wasn't allowed, like, a, I had to bring a broom to a gunfight when we played war. <laughs> I, I, had a, I used to bring a broom. We would, I wasn't allowed to. My parents wouldn't buy the me. bodies? Yeah. And I, I had to lie to my mother about uh that i was playing war with now as your grandson picked up everything's a weapon is he at that point yes now? little boys they every, everything well no everything's a stick i mean he's so happy just to have a stick but you're in texas he yeah, doesn't we'll need him, to, we'll he doesn't need a, a stick he can just go get a regular gun <laughs> oh god don't right. even don't even give us uh, horrible i know it's horrible i think it's going to cut down on road rage though Yes, because people, everybody's thinking, eh, right. not gonna, not gonna cut that guy off. Mutual assured destruction. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about Barbie. What did you play with when you were a kid? My daughter had my daughter. My sister had Barbies. We didn't. I didn't play with dolls. We liked to play. We played war. We played, you know, g games of sport. Right. We had. I, I grew up in a great neighborhood until the fourth grade. There were like five or six boys my age just within four houses right you know and and we had we had a we had a football team and we played the team i grew up in a really small town like literally you could it was seven blocks wide from 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 farmland to farmland that's hmm. that's the where and, until the fourth grade that's where my dad taught right and, uh, i played war as a kid with a broom my friends all had guns. What kind of sound did you make? Did you go pew, 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 pew? <laughs> but I had a razor. And when they were down, they had a count of 15 Mississippi when they were shot. I would cut their ears off. I would come home <laughs> with a string of ears and insist that uh, I wasn't playing war. But I, yeah. Hey, I've been, you know, um, boy, Michael, Michael Krasny. Um, yeah, Michael Krasny. Krasny, yeah, what a, that was amazing. And uh, he reads. You know, he reads a lot. Yeah, I, yeah. you know what, I've been reading more. And, and I've noticed that whenever you kind of run out, when the guest is, you get into a dry point with the guest, what have you been reading? And, and you haven't said that in a while. And when you have said it, I haven't been reading anything, but I've been reading a ton. Our, our books, on, I've been doing books on tape. And uh, I've had a full dose of Mailer recently, hmm. Norman Mailer. I'm not sure I like it. 
I'm not a like big, I'm not a big fan of Norman Mailer. I started listening ma- to what his what, book what are you on, listening to? What, Naked and the Dead? Yes. Um I I I got his book called uh Writing the Spooky Art. Right. That's six, good. That's good. It's fantastic. Oh, he did right. something I have a great project for you. He had a he he talks a lot about critics and critical review and he 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 kind of figures he goes on he really he, he really talks about himself a lot but it's all about writing and he says that um, if he f- put out a new book and he get 50-50 if it was 50-50 50 good 50 bad he knew he had he could sell books and uh but he put out one and I can't remember the, I, w- I wish I I was going to write these down but uh, one particular book was not well received by anybody but what he did he took out a full page ad in uh, the new york times and all he did was print the bad ones not mailer's best work the la times you know a real stinker sounds you know st louis dispatch and he, he printed all he printed all the bad things and he says the sales of the book soared <laughs> it was so smart because people want to, well, I got to read this book, this horrible book that, that you just put out. Well, know? that's interesting. He, and, and he, he listened, he, he's, he, he's the, the narrator for, uh, the spooky art. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to hear. No, he's not the, he's the, he is not the narrator. No, he's not the narrator. I wish I could have heard his voice because uh, the narrator goes kind of fast and there are so it's like drenched in amazing metaphors and and interesting ways to describe things. And, you know, it's not that his vocabulary is so uh, erudite. It's muscular. It's, a, it's muscular writing. It's, it's brilliant. It's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Have you read so Stephen King's? Him. Have you read Stephen King's book on writing? Yes, I did. I That's did. amazing. It's a good book. Uh, Norman Mailer doesn't have much good to say about Stephen King's writing, but he said what Stephen King mastered was style. You know, he says, and if, you, if you've got that, you can be a popular writer. Right. If you have a style that's distinctive, you know. But, um, yeah, it, you know, um, when I started reading Naked and the Dead, there's an there's a uh, forward to it and he alludes to the fact he says that the forward says this was a book by an amateur he said he didn't really know what he was doing it was his war recollections yeah yeah he had been in the army and he'd been in the south pacific and he'd been in some on some patrols and he wanted to get the feeling of what it was like on a patrol and it's a pretty it's a pretty amazing thing it's got a all of his writing has a dark undertow that i find disturbing you know um but naked and the dead by the way was the uh <laughs> my, it was your high, high school prom <laughs> yeah keep it clean yes um you, you know uh but he said that uh every night when he he was every night when he was writing naked and the dead he would read tolstoy anna karenina so i started anna karenina which is only 35 hours long on the <laughs> oh that's good <laughs> and it's just basically a soap opera but um i wrote i i got through uh, tough guys don't dance that was pretty good 
I, I picked that one because in the spooky art, he says he he owed uh, his publisher a book in eight weeks, and that's when he knocked out. Uh, and I was really curious to see what someone like Norman Mailer, who would take years to write a book, right? You know, he would research for a year and then he'd write a book. You know, Executioner's Song is what it took a he he would crank. He wasn't a quick writer, but he did. Uh, he did Tough Guys Don't Dance in eight weeks. So I checked that one out and uh, it was interesting. Right now I'm on uh, Deer Park. Are you hip to Deer Park? No. The Deer Park. His third novel, it's about, um, it's about um, LA uh, and uh, Palm Springs. Hmm. It's, a, it's set in Palm Springs, but he calls it something else. And the Deer Park is a reference to um, the if you that word in French, that phrase in French was what they called this place outside of Paris where Louis the Fifteenth kept young girls to entertain his friends. Oh. So the the Deer Park is all about kept women in uh, what did I say? Palm Springs. Hmm. Have you have you spent much time in Palm Springs? I went down there once or time. Uh, I was just to be kept. <laughs> Just sometimes I like to be kept. How did it feel? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that's what I've been reading. And, and uh, it's. Uh, oh, oh. And then Catherine Lou, I read her book on the plane when I went down to Austin last Friday. That's a great little book. Oh, I recommend Virtue Hoarders. Yes. Virtue Hoarders. I asked her back. She's going to come back oh, next week. Oh, man. She, she, that was that was one of the best segments you've ever had on. She had so much information. And that little book is very small. Um, it is loaded with inf information that is, um, it's, not, it's not stuff we don't know about, but just, she frames it with such, you know, she goes back and, and traces historically what the, you know, the, the roots of all the problems that we have right now. And uh, we got to get her I back. I found it very interesting. Yeah, get her back. Anyway, that's what I've been doing. Well, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. It's good to thank see you. Thank you, David. We missed you. I hope you enjoyed that pig for love. Oh, my God. And we, we have to go over your body of work. <laughs> I, have, I have to sit down. I, if I showed you I'm my sure desk. I'd like to do that. <laughs> if I showed you my desktop, you'd be appalled. Thank you, Professor. When, when your last guest said, I'd like to I'd like to meet you in the flesh, I'm like, whoa, wait a second here. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go that far. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Give my best to Nadine, will you? Okay, we'll Thank do that. You. Thank you. Bye. That is Professor Mike Steinel. That's our show for Tonight, I want to thank everybody in the Zoom room for uh, enjoying my nervous breakdown. We weren't able to live stream the show tonight. And it's interesting. You get used to a certain pattern. And I was thrown. I was thrown off by not being able to put it up on YouTube and doing it live. Like, I don't really pay attention to YouTube, but the fact that it's live and it, it gets my heart going and uh, it's nice to see everybody in the zoom room i want to thank all our guests for showing up today colleen worthman and uh i can't <laughs> this was a rough one and dan is gone i'm not gonna thank the guests but uh yeah i have to hang on give me a second 
I'm, I, I'm discombobulated. If you would like to sit in our Zoom room and participate and ask questions and meet the chinwaggers in the chat room, go to my website and hit attend a live taping and we'll send you a link. Don't forget that office hours is every Friday night at 8 p.m. I answer questions from 8 till 9 and then then the rest of the, the good people take over. Thank you to Colleen Worthman, Jeff Blackwood, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Peter Kalmus, pick up his book, Being the Change, Live Well and Spark a Climate Revolution, Professor Marianne Cummings, Peter B. Collins, and Professor Michael Krasny, and of course, jazz historian and Dylanologist, the great Professor Mike Steinel. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts, and we have a YouTube channel that didn't work tonight, but we'll get this up somehow on YouTube. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way